Hey everyone, I'm here with Allison McDowell again, and we recently got back from Tucson, Arizona, where we went down, a friend of ours, Drew, uh, put on an event, and Allison and I both um, gave presentations at it, and I also filmed it, so um, the the segments, Allison gave a presentation in like 10-minute segments, um, so what we've done is... Uh, put them all together into one into one video um and then allison wanted to to make a little like open air video to kind of explain what it is you're looking at and maybe give a little discussion about about it so yes yeah so um yeah i wanted to add in because well our, our friend drew who invited us back um this is sort of the second talk the first one that we did jason filmed and i gave was one of probably the most watched in single talk uh, that I have out there about sort of the game games and smart cities and games. And um, that was a year ago in the summer, like summer before last. Um, but Drew said there are at least a couple of people who I think were overwhelmed by the amount of material. And in fact, one person said they couldn't come back for the second day of the event because they were just too overwhelmed. <laughs> so I think Drew thought it might be better if um, we tried out like I would do like 10 minute sections between each speaker. And so I did eight 10 minute uh, presentations so that the flow is different than a, you know, a whole talk. And in that way, I wanted to sort of introduce. And really one of the things I wanted to explore was something I, I'm starting to feel is really important is this idea of complex adaptive systems and also uh, like I, I, my shorthand is like the ant computer or the slime bold computer um, and how this works with um, complex adaptive systems theory. And then now what I, I've just been spending some time on the last day or so, Jason, on the token engineering commons. And, um, you know, of course, you and Leo are far more knowledgeable about the particulars about how some of these mechanisms work in financial markets. But beyond simply that digital programmable money is meant to control people or possibly punish people it actually is i believe coming out of this stuff that i'm looking at with john holland and genetic algorithms looking at coordinating small units and subgroups of society in towards some larger collective emergent potential um, whether that emergence is like they're, they're a crazy attempts to try to give a soul to AI or the singularity or whether it's to try to like create some no sphere thought form or whatever. But I think the people who are in charge of us ushering in these new global economic systems through program money and literally the engineering of economies. And that's something I've spent some time on this morning is looking at Trent McConaughey of Ocean Protocol and Michael Zargam of Block Science and what is his name, like Griff, the token, the common stack guy. And they're all in this talk, talking about simulated economies and artificial economies and setting up dashboards and bonding curves and things that I don't quite understand yet that I'm gonna to try to dial in on. But this idea of a simulation, a simulated society and running iterations and then optimizing it, I think is, is, is a frame that those of us who are you know, advocating for the continuation of natural life on the earth or free will on the earth or some sort of agency and, and autonomy outside of a, uh, a collective system. But this is not a, a collective in terms of um, 
purely a political ideology. It's rather a mechanical collective. It's it's the, the collective of we, which is the, the read aloud I've been doing, the I versus the we, um, which, you know, he was Russian, so there, there's a bit of politics in it, but it's actually more about the mathematical logic layer. And so these eight 10 minute segments are touching on that frame. And I think, um, you know, it was primarily people who are coming from more of a, a health freedom space. Um, so the, the, the talk, that I was offering was kind of outside. I, I'm often pushing the boundaries of these things, um, the frame of reference, and I'm not sure how um, much it sank in, although sometimes it takes time and people go back to it. They loop back around and they go, oh yeah, the ant computer. Um, but at least in having this video that we can share it out, you know, I've touched on this some with some talks I've done with Cliff already. Um, and yeah, build off of it, build off of it. And then at the end, I think there's gonna be some stuff. There was a panel discussion uh, with some Q and A, and then I had a, a couple chunks within that panel discussion that are gonna be glommed on at the end. And then, um, you know, hopefully like when this closes out, we'll, we'll have a chance to, to stream it uh, live so people can join in and Jason and I can, you know, recollect some on the trip itself because it was, you know, in looking around the labyrinth, Tucson, it turns out has a lot of really interesting stories. Yeah, for sure. And 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 then just you want you know you wanted to highlight the the fact that you know Tucson, the history of Tucson, and um, uh, signals. You know the, yeah. the 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 role of signals there, and 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 there's a lot going on there regarding that. So we 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 we've done a few visits. I had to leave. I had I had an event to come back to Denver to, um, but you stayed down there and actually did some other did, did some other stuff and went to visit, made some other visits, as yeah. well. Um, but yeah, space, Tucson is the real relevant. Are sort of like space and consciousness and domination and like nature, right? Because what what part of the the. Um, the anchor point for the, the stories that I was telling last time was that Tucson, like Southern Arizona broadly is sort of the, was the site of the Apache Wars uh, where, they, and they went on for like 30 years before Co Cochise ended up dying in the Dragoon Mountains and then Geronimo was taken to Oklahoma and Fort Sill where, you know, later on it's understood that his uh, skull was stolen and taken to the Skull and Bone Society, evidently. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of this story of both this struggle of um, attempted cultural erasure, attempted empire, like where we are in the new digital empire, and Fort Huachuca, which we went to on the on the first trip. Uh, yeah, the Center for Electronics Warfare and um, the nature of aerospace and defense in Tucson, along with um, Stuart Hameroff's work in consciousness studies uh, at the University of Arizona. Yeah. Um, sorry, my thing's not <laughs> holding here. I need to work on that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, what, what was I gonna say? So I just lost my train of thought. I wanted to go, I was gonna go off on a tangent about like, where this is coming from, but maybe this isn't the best video for doing that. But I'm gonna I'm gonna edit edit this out. Yeah. I'm just trying to think. Um, <clears throat> oh yeah, so yeah, so we hiked. Um, we, we did a hike at the Cochise uh, stronghold, and I forgot the name of the the campsite that was at the end there. But uh, it was a really amazing, beautiful hike, and we were initially we were just gonna you know Allison just wanted to go to the. Uh, there's kind of a rest area with all these really amazing rock formations. Magma. It's very volcanic. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, but we couldn't find a place to get into the rocks. It was like fenced off. And so we were driving around and looking around and and then, uh, you know, so Allison didn't want to do her I thing had trauma. at the rest stop. Like, <laughs> I was driving. Driving is not my superpower. Driving is more Jason's superpower. But um, so I had this rental car and it turns out like if you rent cars, places out west in remote areas is that they don't put... Um, uh, spare tires in them anymore. And so I had sort of a traumatic situation with a blowout on a tire over the summer. And so I was like, I I don't think I can drive on a lot of dirt roads. <laughs> like, I'll just try to do something like near a regular road. And, and then the fate was like, no, 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 you need to go there. You need to go all the way there. <laughs> and I'm sitting there like, I'm like, what's the big deal? Like, these are like, not like bad roads. I mean, they're, yeah, they're dirt roads, but they're not like, you know, they're not like hardcore off-road. There were a few little dips, but, but I didn't realize. So I, I, you know, understanding her, her, her fear was that she had gotten stuck in, was it, was it Tucson? Taos. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Taos. You, she yeah. had gotten stuck with a rental car and I had no idea that they're not putting, uh, tire, spare tires in rental cars anymore. Yeah. And so, you know, like it was kind of a, a you and know, kind of messed up the whole day. Like, even if someone put it on a flatbed and drove it to a town, like even a mid-sized town, like, like Taos, yeah. um, yeah, that like the supply chains, they're just like, yeah. <laughs> when you have a week's vacation in three of your days or anyway, I didn't want to get stuck in the back, but Fate pushed us onto the Dragoon Mountains, and it was beautiful. So. It was it was amazing, and um, and also, but I was just I brought that up because that's actually part of the story here. You know, part yeah. of what they're shifting us into. You know, tires not being available, but even like if you rent a car, you can't fix your own tire. Uh, because everything is a service. You can't do anything yourself. You have to rely on them to come out and do the thing for you. And then, of course, if they're not available or you don't have the right token or whatever, I mean, that's the world that we're shifting into. And, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine last night and um, about about us, you know, talking to some groups when we go out to California. And she was like, well, you know, like, uh, you know, like, the the people here, uh, you know, kind of will get it, and, and I and I and, and I hope she's right that like people will be more open to it. But I was also saying like, yeah, but even people you think will get it don't get it because there's like there's a there's like a, a different orientation, a different understanding of things once you understand, you know, cybernex cybernetics and like the the world sensorium, you know, the world brain, you know, the, these ideas that have been around for a very long time, like without having an understanding of that, you can't understand what's going on. Like you literally can't like everybody's still trying to talk about these issues through traditional frames from uh, pol political frames or economic frames that actually are going to be irrelevant in the very near future <laughs> your old-timey ideas <laughs> yeah, these so yeah during the during the event you'll still see here there there was a kind of a debate amongst people at the events that that allison was speaking at that we're, we're about to show here and uh so I could I could see Allison is getting kind of frustrated here, like listening to this, um, because it was about it, they, a constitutional convention. They were debating the, the appropriateness of a constitutional convention. Right, exactly, and and the founding fathers and what this country was intended to be and all of that. So, uh, you know, and so Allison gets up there and she's like, you know, I, I, you know, you guys can debate these old timey ideas, and I'm just in the back, like, going, oh my gosh, Allison, <laughs> what are you doing? You're not. Well, I didn't say you couldn't, but they'd have to incorporate the new material, right? Because yeah, if you don't sure. know where it's headed, then if you're just debating in the past, yeah. or even what you understand as the present that is in flux. It's, you're not going to get to any kind of good strategy of how to navigate it. Right. And it wasn't meant to be a jab. It was just meant to be like 
come on guys like this is like we've moved on like the, the world has changed and you're you're you don't you're not recognizing that you know you're not recognizing the change that has has happening has happened and is still happening and so that's what we're trying to do is is we, you know should we need to shift our thinking about all these things and not just listen to whatever you know thought leader that the the algorithmic feed is 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 pre presenting to you because the stories that they're they're telling are inaccurate you know that doesn't mean that they're, they're incomplete they're incomplete. They're incomplete yeah yeah i'm yeah. sorry that's that, i would say incomplete but also a little bit inaccurate in terms of like where the source of the problem is or where the source of some of these things are coming from so um uh, but also like historical you know like i know there are um you know someone has some new books out about the history you know of the the cia and the mafia and that's actually really important stuff about our history but again like it's like there's a new system coming online and i think that the powers you know the the, the we say the powers that be whatever that is whatever the thing that is behind this whether it's emergent or if there's some sort of you know i i don't actually understand that but like but i know it's happening and um they're okay with okay, we'll let you know about all this horrible stuff that's happened up until this point. And then you can chew on that, you know? Meanwhile, we're building this n totally new thing. You know what I mean? Right. Well, and, and, you know, if people haven't had a chance to see, um, it'll be a bit like for when this comes out, because we're going to put it put it after the first of the year. But I have I have a blog post. I ended up ironically in a... Um, a webinar for IEEE, which is the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. And, you know, I, I don't think tons of people, like it just, just doesn't trip off the tongue, like unless you're in the space. And it's interesting that this far down the line, like it's not commonly understood that these systems, it's a, it's a global thought form, right? And it's, it's a digital signals engineering and they all have to be coordinated. And those happen through, um, certain global mechanisms of which IEEE, it's a private, uh, you know, group of electrical engineers that's that's global. They're one of the major players. And then NIST, which is the standard system here in the US is also coordinating a lot of the cyber physical sensor networks, right? Because you, if you're gonna live as an avatar, it, there has to be consistency wherever you are in the world. And so that's in the process of happening. And there are, I would encourage people to look up, it's like the IEEE Metaverse Congresses. There have been five sessions so far. I think two of the five are actually uh, directed at Chinese audiences and are in Chinese. But there's three that you can watch. I mean, well, the first two, and I have a screen grab, not great, of the of this fifth one. But I got on the list, and so I went and I logged in the day that they were live streaming, which was um, a few days back. And it, I realized, um, once I hopped on, it was a WebEx, um, looking at the participants that there were about a dozen panelists or presenters and they had it separated presenters versus participants and I was the only participant right and so in in this space you know I spent three hours like almost like one every minute or two minutes typing in these comments um, because they're just presuming this is all good like everyone is fine with living in the new simulation which is engineered but, but towards the end I said you know do we not recognize this as military technology? Like, do we not recognize this as that the military has access to very high level, sophisticated behavioral psychology that will be built into these gamified environments? And do we, are, are we going to forget 
all of this research into altered states of consciousness and um, psychology and um, and even torture, right? Because we we know, like you know, and I, I in the the blog post that I put up with supplementary material, I had the congressional hearings. I think it was 1997 on MK Ultra, and again, much of that material was scrubbed and burned and deleted. Um, but even so, there were still congressional hearings into this program that existed about how to manipulate people's minds um, to certain ends. And you know, I don't. So the, the challenge is, you can look backwards at these issues and these these nefarious things that have happened and are part of our history but if you don't then apply it to okay so yes and then apply it to what does that mean to live in a cyber physical system to live in an outside in robot that knows a tiny fraction of a second before you act what your mind meant to do and can steer you with this you know like various influences either from outside your body or inside your body into a certain direction and and when you listen to these individuals talking about token engineering, those tokens could just also be representative as agents, as people, as objects in the world. They're just steering them. It's all about steering. And um, anyway, so yeah, I agree. Like we, we need to look at the past, but we need this through line into the, 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 the present and projected future or just looking at the past in isolation, there's such a sea change that we're at right now that it's it's not gonna do us much good to stop at just exposing past harms. Yeah, just to give an example of something that most of us are probably familiar with is, you know, auto, when you're when you're typing in, you know, Word or Google or whatever, and it wants to, it wants to finish your sentences. And a lot of times that is, that is what I wanted to type but I end up typing it myself anyways, just like, that's like my stupid resistance. I'm like, yes, that's gonna, and, I'll, I'm, and sometimes I change the words, even though that's what I was originally gonna write, but I'll change the words just because fuck you, you know? <laughs> I know you but better like, than you. I know, but imagine that like on steroids, like tenfold, like acting out in the real world, you know? Um, so yeah. Well, I talk about this outside in robot, right? And like, and, and even in this talk that the ink, so this talk, not only was it with IEEE people and I was the only person, but it turns out it was the incoming president of the organization, the entire, the head of the standards committee who had uh, a long career with IBM in China and I think is now based in California and is working on developing artificial senses. I think next up now that they've dialed in on uh, vision and hearing and some touch is taste and smell. Like he's, and he's convinced that he's gonna build a, a better simulation. And um, the father of wearable computing and the grandfather of virtual reality. So it's like Allison in this, in this space. But, you know, I was, uh, oh gosh, I, I lost my train of thought. Oh, oh gosh, what was I just saying? I can oh, cut Jason, it. I lost my okay, you can cut it. I, I can cut up to the point. In this I know. <laughs> Wait, did she just jump? Um, oh, what, what, I know. I'm just trying to remember what how I launched into this about the, oh, finishing. Oh, yes. Okay. Sorry, sorry. Going back. Um, okay. So, and among those, so the incoming president, his name is uh, Tom Coughlin, I think, and he's in San Jose, expertise in data storage, uh, which is what they need a lot of. And essentially what he said was that having a permanent record of ourselves across our lifetime will help us be better people and will help other people know ourselves better. And that this will be an optimization scheme, like essentially. And really there has not been an ethical discussion on whether we all actually agree that that, that is 
because once you put into place that we live in a panopticon where every mistake you make is part of a permanent record, I can imagine that being very paralyzing for a lot of people, right? Like you, you'll always be, you'll, you'll be afraid to do something because you might do it wrong and then it'll be on your record. And, you know, it's the irony of this coming from Silicon Valley, which is, you know, their mantra for so many years was, you know, move fast and break things, <laughs> you know, like these mm -hmm. are the move fast and break things people, but we're going to keep it on your record so we can know you better. And we'll always keep track of what, who you are. And, um, yeah. yeah. Lots more conversations about this need to be had about living in the outside in robot. I wonder if the uh, Chinese version of that uh, webinar had more than one participant <laughs> that's outside that group. But that's interesting, too, the fact that this is so insular. It's like, the you know, there's this major thing that's occurring, and the only people that know about it that are discussing are the people that are building it. I mean, these, these conversations aren't happening in any of the media or even the alt media. Uh, except for, you know, a few people like us, but, um, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's just them talking amongst themselves yet the implications for the world and the future and life itself are massive. Like probably, you know, this is, I would argue that this is a greater, like the, the shift, I think it's the greatest shift in human history, recorded human history, the implications of how this will change life on earth, human beings, everything it's and i don't that i i'm not saying that hyperbolically like i i mean thinking about this i i really do think that that this is the greatest shift in in human uh life i don't know what <laughs> i word that but you know what i mean um so I, w I wanted to just read a quick quote and i i read i, I mentioned this to you allison but i think it's relevant because in terms of how to frame this, um, this is a quote by Karl Rove from October of 2004, and he was talking about the U.S. empire and the, you know, what they were doing in the Middle East. But I think that the 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 um, the the mindset here is is important to wrap your mind around. <laughs> uh, it says we. He said we are an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality. And while you're studying that reality, judiciously as you will, we'll act again, creating other new realities, which you can study too, and that's how things will sort out. We're history's actors, and you, all of you, will be left to just study what we do. And the way that I think about this quote, or, or why I think it's, you know, it it's useful for me is because I think like so many of us are studying the old reality. Like we're not. And so what like Allison and I and a few others are doing are trying to like look ahead, like, okay, what's the, what's the new reality? What's the, you know, the, the, there's a digital empire being built right now in front like of our very of the eyes. Some of specifics of it. Like the, the specifics. As yeah. to just like, oh, there's a, a scary thing happening right, and a boss right. controlling you and your right. money that like, what, how? Like, what are the, the particulars? What what, right. what are the policies? What are the me mechanics of it? And I've even used phrases like, oh, they're building a digital prison, you know, like, okay, but that's not really useful. I mean, it's it's useful to like, maybe get you to like, oh, maybe I should find out what that means. Like, how does that look? And so we're trying to give you like specifics about what this thing looks like. What are the, what is the thing that they're building and where's it going and what are the implications? And is that something that we want? Um, and and yet, you know, a, a lot of the the people uh, that are that have like platforms are focused on, and and I'm not saying that it's not important to focus on those things, but you need to you need to incorporate them into what's happening now. But looking at like, 
you know, the history of the CIA. And I've, I've spent a lot of my time looking, looking back at those things, but we need to, to, to bring it forward, you know, and say, okay, but, but also include and incorporate the, the, the new schemas that they're, that they're setting up, which are much more dramatic, I would argue. And, um, Terrifying. Well, and I would say the thing that I'm realizing is that, you know, they're, they're, they put out a bit of bait and they have people pounce. And like, once you realize everyone is sort of the set of hashtags and, you know, you know, as your digital twin, and then they map it and then they drop, do the next drop and then people pounce and then the ripples go through the crowd. And then they like, so it's like, we've been living for the past couple of years in this loop of like info drops up, you know, especially meant to be polarizing or, you know, trigger intense emotion, and then it fans out, and then the next week it's the new thing. And and all of this is being modeled in their games. I mean, that's, you know, they're talking about modeling token economies, but it's the same kind of modeling in these other militarized simulations. And so they're building these vast data sets. So like at this point, you know, if you're still jumping on the next thing Klaus Schwab says, like you're literally just being conditioned like, you know, a puppet, just like you, you're afraid that you're going to be, but you are actually already are. And so like, and I don't know how to stay totally out of it. And to me, like, on the one hand, I'm sort of lonely of being like, I don't know what's happening out there in the online world, really, because I'm, I'm off of it. But I am pursuing these deeper dives into, um, you know, like the tokenomics. And I think that's really huge. And as much as they're framing everything as a penalty, right, the social credit score or, um, you know, limitations, I think in actuality, as it as this rolls out, they're going to craft a narrative that these tokens, th these participation tokens are something you'll want something that is empowering, something that like, they're gonna be selling these to the freedom community as you know self-actualization through participating in these blockchain systems. They're not gonna come at you with the China social credit score. They want you fixated on that while they set up the counter narrative, which is, hey, like you can be a participant, you can be a giver, you can get micro credit for your intellectual property. You can get all of these things in our space, but they're not going to really tell you that it's an artificial environment that they equate to SimCity where they're at the dashboard dialing up and down the various metrics, you know, to get you, they're not going to tell that part. And so we just have to be very conscious about how we're consuming narratives that are put in front of us and um, to sort of look at all sides, you know, before you dive in with your emotional reaction. Because what I'm realizing from the Signals and Boundaries book is a lot of this is actually like linguistics and grammar. And, and I, I feel like increasingly what they're after is a grammar of human emotion, a grammar of human feeling, of human so sociality, um, to try to, to um, either narrow it to like emoticons and that sort of thing, and then, and then track it, and to come up with a, the grammar that will help them represent human life. Um, it will never be able to represent the richness and the eclectic, chaotic nature of, of natural yeah, it's life. It's reducing it, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So anyway, so yeah, just keep trying to like, get, and that's not to say that, that there isn't an important information that, that people aren't sharing in these other spaces. It's just, if you're not including this, if you're not including uh, some of this other material, you're really like not understanding where it is where we're headed, 
you know i mean that's just the reality of it you're not understanding the new the new empire that's being built you're still you're still like allison says you're still talking a little bit about some of the old timey <laughs> uh, um you know I would the, say, like, the, key the old system are like ultimately this idea of convergence i mean and, and there could be another layer that we have not yet discovered i'm not saying that that i have this all sewn up because every month there's like some more a layer that adds more clarity for me, but they are trying to get some sort of new evolutionary form of life. Like it is centered in evolution and eugenics towards some collective being form. Um, and whether that's for, you know, the singularity, for interplanetary space colonization, like who knows exactly why, but there's this imperative to get out of our, dematerialize us as physical beings, and then materialize as some sort of digital mind file. And then that is being done through the blockchain web three, both the money system and the sensor based system tied to behavior um, to, to get to build up those digital twin files. And then the, the game that's going to be pushing it all along is this uh, ESG investing, social impact finance, you know, dispossess people out of authentic work. Um, and then push them into UBI where essentially their job, their m menial job will be to perform humanity um, and in, in under in the panopticon. So it can be fed into the machine. So I think that's the trajectory is the impact finance, the cyber physical and socio-technical systems in Web3 and then emergence. And if you're not like people are just like, well, I don't understand why they would be doing these things. And I'm like, well, you, you have to incorporate that. Like the finance is leading to the the like the web three and the finance interface with one another, they enable each other. And then ultimately it's about organized data aggregation and prediction modeling into this, you know, sifting us out of our bodies and into, I don't know, a big- Yeah, I'm, and I'm still skeptical of like the, the, the idea that they can sift us out of our bodies. I mean, I know that there's a lot of stuff that claims, you know, I mean, the, the moonshot goals, like, I mean, directly states that. Um, now, whether they can do that or not, and what what actually is the force behind this? Because I, I and I imagine that there are people that that in, in, in powerful people in this world. This is what I imagine, and I don't even know if that's actually true. But like that, they know what's what this thing is, and they have no intention on being a part of this global brain. You know, they're going to be outside of it and manipulating it that's that's kind of where i kind of lean into um but i, I don't know i mean it, it could be it's, it's kind of a mystery to me because some of these things are so for, some of these ideas are so completely foreign to at least my understanding of of the world and what's possible what's even like actually possible but you're but there reading are some, world sensorium now right uh, i'm so reading the yeah how clearly laid out these ideas they, are almost 100 years old right so yeah i i finally picked up that you know allison has read a lot of quotes from the world sensorium which are kind of incredible and so i was like by oliver l riser and uh, i finally went and picked it up and i'm and i'm actually reading it now and it's kind of stunning you know and and it would just be like okay this is just some, some you know there's a lot of like create new agey groups that have some sort of like oh well you know the comet's going to come by and we're going to jump on it there's play with all kinds of wild ideas but actually this this if you lay what's being said in this book over what's actually happening right now in the digitals in this digital digital transformation it it, it, it aligns like perfectly aligns <laughs> so whether or not like 
you know they can actually do what they want to do it's clear that this is this isn't this is the the direction that they're pushing society and that we're we're, we're all going to just be like nodes in in like a global world sensorium global brain um you have to read it like really like it's it's actually like a not a very it's a pretty easy book to read and it's not that long either uh um so yeah, I definitely highly recommend reading well, and that this book. And this one too. So this one is I, uh, I I read from this one too. The J.D. Bernal, The World, the Flesh, and the Devil: uh, mm. An Inquiry into the Future of the Three Enemies of the Rational Soul. And and this book was written in 1929, so it predates Riser by oh, wow. a bit. And he was a a, a Cambridge trained X-ray crystallographer, uh, and he was at high levels of um, the, the British scientific community. So he wasn't like a science fiction author. This guy was a scientist, essentially, you know, predicting that in in this planned future we would have a, a larval state of living in a physical body for like a hundred years, and then we'd put our brain in the cylinder and live through like superpower haptic robotic arm pinchers and sensors. And this is 1929, and like we're weirdly we're getting there. And you know, one of the people in this um, webinar, the IEEE, was this father of, of virtual reality, a grandfather of virtual reality, and. He, he, he had spent most like 20 plus years as an officer in the Air Force working at Wrights-Patterson Air Force Base. So again, it's this man-machine blending is like the pilot and the airplane is where a lot of this got started. But, um, you know, I, I just sent him another email, like he, he reached out because he said he had some concerns too. And I said, well, you know, this is, I laid out like, this is my research, you know, I. You know, I don't think the engineers are supposed to know that the global financial markets are placing bets on children's behavior, <laughs> you know, but they are, that's the plan and it's not good. And I said, you know, within this virtual reality, why would we want to outsource like Bernal set like to, to the sensor technology? Like, why would we want to outsource our senses to something that's mediated and we don't know what's mediating it? Like, we don't know. And the very first time I ever saw virtual reality, um, depicted and this wasn't that long ago it was like 2016 15 16 it was a video and it was a presentation at penn state so i wasn't there in person but i was watching the video and the presenter was from the uk and he showed a clip of a vr headset that he had put on his sister-in-law and the experience was a roller coaster right and so you could see her body's reaction to being in a virtual roller coaster in this headset now I'm not a fan of roller coasters. Like, I mean, some people are big fans. Like, I am not a fan. Like, this, I'm not a fan of roller coasters. And my visceral reaction in watching this woman in the VR headset was that is a torture device. Hmm. Like, that's a torture device. And so, um, anyway, like, if if we are to live in the outside-in robot, like, it could maybe, like, smooth away and make you your best self or it could also be like a total ish, like wage psychological warfare on you <laughs> and, and 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 there's no there's no protection at this point there's not even an awareness that this is a conversation we should be having oh yeah and so I, another thing i think you wanted to bring this up because i uh, had sent uh, i i'm on a i still have telegram but I, I have a few groups but i kind of barely follow anything um but i have a few people that i can still keep you know what jason keeping. can we do this one at the end well, yeah, but we can. Oh, I wasn't planning on showing the thing right now. I was just going to record. Oh, did you did you want to watch it? Your your talk.
Oh, I, I was just recording like uh, that afterwards, like after the live. Could we go like? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. No, yeah, for that's sure. what I was thinking. Like, oh, I yeah, want to do sure. that, but I want to save a little bit for the end. So oh, yeah, so sure. Have, like, for sure. Because I'd like to open it up in case people have questions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but I thought we could hold that like we, we should. Yeah. Chose I need to get Bernal's book now, too. But but yeah, it's, is, it's, it's yeah, it's short, but it's yeah. Yeah, but like it, it's it's kind of frustrating because i don't know it's just like you're i don't know <laughs> people are we're having different conversations i guess is what's going on here it's just you know i i can tell you that where i was two and a half years ago is extremely different than where i'm at now in terms of understanding this thing and it's it, it's it's a process but um yeah, well, and I, I appreciate your perspective because I wouldn't know like where to get started on web three, you know, if, if I didn't like, you don't know who to even look up, right? Like you don't, these are not, I mean, on the one hand, you have the large tech companies like HP and IBM and, and they're all in this space too. Um, but a lot of the, the, this early engineering programs, these are happening with very small groups of people. Um, but they're backed, like you know that this is the direction that things are going in because of you know they're, they're the global nature. So, um, like again, I I wouldn't be on this. It's a complementary. We have complementary sets of information. Yeah, um, and then you as well. Like I mean, I would say if you ask most people about things like Ocean Protocol or MakerDAO or Impact, you know. Found IXO Foundation or these things like it would just it's totally not on anybody's radar yeah. even as the tentacles are being sent out the mycelia into the <laughs> compost <Yeah. laughs> well for me it's been difficult because again like it's it's like you know you're on a ship and you're headed this way and it, like in my understanding of like okay of the world and like because I've been thinking about this stuff like since I was in high school I've been thinking about global politics and economics and and you know a lot of these issues i've been thinking about forever and trying to like war was a big thing for me i'm like well what what's causing you know why why do these wars happen you know and and, and i'm not being satisfied with a lot of the answers that i was being given so you know and i and i finally you know i, I kind of started to get like a, a an understanding a, a kind of a general understanding of 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 how the world works and then all of a sudden this thing comes in i'm like oh wait wait what so it's like it's kind of disorienting you know you're like oh like the 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 concept of cybernetics is and and, and actually seeing it play out like seeing them actually do it um it's it's really disorienting so it's even for me it's been it's it's been a little bit of like you know kind of regaining you know my uh what do you call it like when you're like kind of dizzy and you're <laughs> what your sea legs getting my your sea... bearings again. yeah getting my bearings yeah getting my bearings back or whatever so uh, but yeah so i'm grateful for you and I'm, I'm really hoping that more people join us you know and i know that you know like um you know we do have you know a handful of people that are following this work uh which is really amazing um but like also like start to engage with it in terms of you know helping us along and 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 like adding to it you know that would be really great as well and you so, know yeah. and it takes a bit like people will get it like i mean eventually like we're planting the seeds right as as drew says like 
Allison, you're leave, you're the scout and you're leaving little piles of stones along the way, um, you know, as I sort of race forward. And I think sometimes people get frustrated that I can't say it more simply or that I'm being difficult just to not break it down in some basic way. But like my job is to scout and to, 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 to go out and out ahead and then, you know, the people behind if you know like i could be a reference but you know to try to make it into something that's more accessible that's more meaningful um because if i stopped and tried to make everything more meaningful i would i would not get to where i'm, I'm at in terms of understanding um but yeah like it take. i think sometimes it just takes a while and then it starts to click you know people are like okay i watched 20 hours i listened to 20 hours of you and then now i'm starting to get it mm -hmm. and you know and it's it's hard because we are in a you know for what it's worth, like there is, it's a, it's a, a competition for attention. Everybody has a finite amount of attention, finite amount of bandwidth, and like there's a huge amount of information overload, and like people pick and choose. And so if you're just going to sort of dip in and sample here or there, it's going to remain confusing. So there there is a certain level of commitment, and it's not a commitment everyone is in a position of wanting to make at this point. But um, you know, we'll see bit by bit. Yeah bit by bit. So here's uh here's the the, the uh, presentation uh in eight parts. Was it eight? Yeah, it's eight ten minute chunks. And, <laughs> okay. and, and just so you know, I I, I want to say in the opening, um uh so I, I flew out on Friday and um the presentation was started early on Saturday and I ended up having like a terrible migraine Friday night and was somewhat incapacitated. So I would just say if the first uh one or two segments are a little bobbly, it's because I'm also like was getting, uh, I didn't have a lot of time to revisit all of my materials and we had a little bit of tech stuff. I didn't know how to do the clicker right. So just bear with me, I was not in my best state, but I, I rebounded and the rest of it after the first one or two are pretty good. And then at the end of it, we'll come back on and, and we'll come back on live and we will, um, uh, we can take your questions and we can have a little bit more discussion. So um, thanks for joining us. Drew and I, we, we had a chance to meet uh, in March. We were at a conference in Provo that had to do with uh, um, blockchain. Uh, it was the, the, uh, sponsored by the Mormon Transhumanist Association and a number of us sort of converged there and to hear what they were up to with their, their blockchain technology. And so the last talk that I gave was really focused on this idea of um, turning the world through smart sensors into a game that financial interests were going to be betting on and then looking particularly at the state of Arizona policy and exploring it particularly through the lens of education. And this is not just within the public schools, but with this idea that education would be sent out into the landscape with devices and tracked so that the machine could start to learn who we are were as people in, in society. Um, and so this talk today in these 10 minute installments, I'm gonna be um, sort of going through and touching, like building off of that. And, and what I've been looking at over the past year, essentially refining my understanding of digital twin technology, the idea of using data, digital dust from us and aggregating it in piles to create sort of a shadow self and the ways in which these simulation environments that they can use mathematical uh, permutations to uh, influence uh, our behaviors uh, in the real world through uh, 
impinging on these digital models that they have and how that's with blockchain and digital identity and creating all of the, in, the data being interoperable with each other and with the, the people in the environments we're in and the built environment itself, it can change the outcome of these games. And so I've, I've understood more about the twin situation and then also about what's called um, complex adapt adaptive systems or CAS. A lot of this work was done uh, out of the Santa Fe Institute where essentially what's happened is that the, the Manhattan Project uh, sort of segued into the Human Genome Project. And as I'm trying on this lens now, it appears that, you know, there's always new layers of the onion, so I never say, like, I totally have a handle, like, listen to me, because I know what's going on exactly. But it's this process of discovery and, you know, leaving the Karen piles, you know, behind me along the way, and, and maybe you would interpret it differently. But as I'm looking at systems theory, complex systems theory analysis, they're imagining the idea of creating new forms um, of life out of chaos, using order organized in certain mathematical ways, representing us as mathematical symbologies to almost like try to enliven golems or, you know, these, these um, crots, these un, in, unalive things to turn organized information and to, to try to give it a soul. And, and that's what it, it feels like. And so this is what I'm going to be playing around with today a little bit. And it, it builds very much off of, Drew gave me a copy of this in March, of the abolition of man, C.S. Lewis's um, uh, approach to that. And I, I do believe that that is what is, is underway. And um, it's... Yeah, it's underway. I'm not really sure how it's going to work with the slides because I don't have a remote. You have a clicker. Oh, I have a clicker. Okay, so we're walking around the labyrinth. Um, my, I have a friend, Cliff. He's very, he's a, a guide with me for thinking about these things, and he says, you know, we're not here today to try to like identify the wrongdoers because this system is so complex, and they've been telling so many people stories about what's happening that are only small pieces of the puzzle and not the whole story that we can't really expect pointing fingers and trying to assign blame I think leaves us in a, in a place of wanting and, and um, that if we can be more neutral about looking at the structure and realizing we're probably all our, either ourselves or our loved ones entangled in it somewhere and just be like try on the lens of like well, that's interesting, right? That's interesting. It doesn't have to be bad. It doesn't have to be scary. It can be interesting. Because I think at the end of the day, our souls and our spirits are beyond any of these limiting equations they're putting on us. So we can see the labyrinth. Like, we can, if we can actually see the walls, but not get tangled up in the, the spider webs of the labyrinth, but just see it for where we are. And so what I'm going to talk about more in these follow-up sections is looking at Tucson and its place in the labyrinth its geography, what it is offering into the story, which I think has a lot to do with um, consciousness and aerospace, space colonization, <laughs> um, the attempt to uh, re-manufacture, dematerialize our human bodies and put our consciousness into a computational format for easily, more easily transference into some other places, um, and that this history actually goes back like a hundred years or more. And um, there's a, a man, his name is J.D. Bernal. He was an x-ray crystallographer trained at Cambridge, uh, connected with the Fabian Society, uh, with Julian Huxley, with the Huxleys, and uh, Solly Zuckerberg, uh, one of the, the early scientific advisors to uh, Great Britain. It's not just science fiction. He's not just a science fiction author. He's a, a scientist 
scientist who's looking at water and crystalline structures and resonance. And he was predicting space colonization in very clear and synthetic biology and this idea of having our brains put in cylinders and living through haptic robotics in 1929. And it feeds into um, later what, uh, not sure, it's not quite going forward. Uh, Julian Huxley's idea of setting up UNESCO. Um, anyone? I don't know. The clicker's not clicking unless I'm doing it wrong. I think I'm doing advance. Um, anyway, so, uh, anyway, so, oh, here we go. All right, maybe it was just slow. Uh, okay. I'm gonna send these books around because I'm not gonna do a read aloud, but the other one is uh, The World Sensorium by Oliver Reiser in 1946. And Huxley in 1946 predicted, he said, man is at the top, he is the sole trustee of evolution, and it, the, the goal is as much as possible as quickly as possible. And they were seeking to cast a spell over humanity to move us into the age of scientism and away from spirit and religion. Um, so I guess I'll, okay, yes. So I'll, if, if you're interested, I'll send around a piece of paper. I'm happy to send out the slide deck so you can see this more in more detail. But um, that is uh, Huxley speaking about UNESCO and the imperative of evolution. And there's the labyrinth that we're not gonna get stuck in. And uh, this is this idea of uh, uh, use sociality and sociobiology. So I'm just gonna leave this section with this idea. They're moving us into this new phase with uh, polarity. Uh, this idea of creating order out of chaos is that they wanna create little halons, little groups, little teams, and identify them with lots of data. And so we are living now, I believe, in a, in a largely digital simulation in the social media to create polarizing situations to drop it in the, the thing and to, then to flash polarized people on either side on many different issues. And each time that happens, they tag it for the next round of the simulation. And so this often, I think, in conservative circles is, is viewed as a left or a socialist or a communist. What I'm seeing now is that they're looking at ants, termites, bees, it is a use sociality, social biology, and in the creation of new collective consciousnesses of aiming that towards some sort of other way of collective being in another dimension, whether that is space or something else. And so if we can, the most rebellious act in this would be to go, oh, stay out of the labyrinth, that's interesting, hold some space, go, oh, I see what you're doing there, I see what you, the intended result might be in terms of dividing myself from my neighbor, and I'm gonna think about that, and I'm maybe not gonna take the bait, and I'm gonna look for bridges, and, and to try to convey the story that there may be something else going on in the background that's benefiting from this polarity, and it's this idea of moving us into these colonized behaviors. We still have five minutes, I was trying to time myself, okay. Oh, okay. So I know that that sound, might sound a bit odd, but all of this complex adaptive system was coming out of Santa Fe Institute. Um, Martin Nowak was doing this research in use sociality with E.O. Wilson, um, who he was called the Ant Man. I'm, today I'm going to talk a lot about the Ant Computer. Um, Nowak's work at Harvard was largely funded by Jeffrey Epstein. So I think this idea of like him wanting to be a certain baby daddy and like using scientific uh, donations to cover over uh, his bad misdeeds is actually perhaps an in 
incomplete story that he's actually funding, like he, whatever that means, his brand, his identity, the, he was fronting for this money into the systems engineering. And that this is actually based out of eugenics. And when I go to look in the labyrinth of what's happening in Tucson, this idea of synthetic biology comes out of a eugenics past, and it has ties to Arizona. Um, incidentally, they, these folks ended up in Pasadena with something called the Human Betterment Foundation. Uh, it was the West Coast branch of the Eugenics Records Office, which was in uh, Cold Spring Harbor, Long Island. Uh, but E.S. Gosney was a wool, a, a guy who was a breeder of sheep in Arizona, uh, was very active in the business community, and then eventually went on to do uh, citrus in Pasadena. But uh, he was a key eugenicist, very central to this, as well as, uh, oh, whoops, sorry, oh, sorry, cancel, that's my, I was trying to time myself, sorry, um, let me cancel that out, stupid technology. Um, Rufus von Kleinschmidt was uh, a president of Arizona uh, State University here in Tucson, and he, he came from Indiana, he also ended up, he was at USC, he was a president of University of Southern California, also a major eugenicist. So these things come home, and there we've got E.O. Wilson, he's looking at his ants, and on the one side with the yellow and the uh, red dots, that is a sugarscape, it is an artificial society that's programmed through mathematics, and they do mathematical modeling and simulation. So uh, that's sort of the overview for this first part, I think. Um, I, I did circulate these books, and I'm gonna just take a minute in this next section to read a couple, just so, you know, I don't tend to go off on the more things that seem more loopy or out there esoteric. I really started around uh, investigating school closures and following money and reading and you know, watching World Bank talks and reading white papers from Deloitte and Accenture and all these people. Um, but some of the stuff out there that they've been imagining for a century is, is quite intense. And if you don't actually like find the books and read their own words, I think you might think, well, that sounds like a bit of a stretch, Allison. They want to put our consciousness on blockchain and upload us as spores to some interplanetary colonization. I'm like, well, I don't know. These important people in the 1920s were saying that that was the plan. And there are, a lot of your predictions are eerily close to what seems to be happening. Uh, so this is just, I'm going to read a, a couple paragraphs out of the Bernal book. Again, he was the x-ray crystallographer from Cambridge, an expert in structured water. Uh, this is from chapter five called Synthesis. It's, this is after he's laid out the plans that we're going to colonize space and put our brain in a cylinder uh, with cerebral, cerebral spinal fluid and operate through haptics and uh, super-powered sensory organs um, after we've gone through our chrysalis stage. We, we, we had like 100 years of life in a real body and then before they put us in the cylinder. So um, he's saying, Have you followed, having followed our main lines of change separately, it now remains for us to consider the interaction between the physical, physiological, and psychological elements of future human evolution. And again, Huxley was saying man is solely in charge of this. It is very easy to see the relations of the first two. The colonization of space and the mechanization of the body are obviously complementary. Uh, the dissimilarity between the conditions of life in space and on the Earth would in itself be sufficient to cause perfectly normal, unassisted evolutionary changes in human beings. But obviously, spatial conditions would be much more favorable to mechanized than to organic man. If he could get rid of the major part of his body and his necessity for a relatively large intake of oxygen and water-saturated food, the cellular nature of the celestial globes would cease to be necessary. This would give mechanized man an advantage similar to that which the relatively flexible and naked animal cell has over the rigidly demarcated plant. 
Besides, it is only in space that the potentialities of the more highly developed forms of complex minds would have an adequate field of functioning, particularly in their extended time relations. One may picture then these beings nuclear, nuclearly resident, so to speak, in a relatively small set of mental units, each utilizing the bare minimum of energy, connected together by a complex ethereal intercommunication, and spreading themselves over immense areas and periods of time by means of inert sense organs, which, like the field of their active operations, would be in general at a great distance from themselves as the scene of life would be more cold emptiness of space than the warm, dense atmosphere of the planets, the advantage of containing no organic material at all so as to be independent, both of these conditions would be increasingly felt. It is when we turn to the interaction on the psychological plane that the difficulties again occur. The physical and the psychological have a mutual influence which is very difficult at the present moment to estimate. Undoubtedly, if modern tendencies have any elements of permanency in them, a great deal of the activity of the future will be devoted to the end of a greater understanding of the universe. Humanity or its descendants may well be much more occupied with purely scientific research and much less with the necessity of satisfying primary physiological and psychological needs than it is at present. This character may stamp the whole of future development so that machinery will be organized not for production, but for discovery. Indeed, the great necessity for production, either of food or other articles of consumption, will disappear rapidly with the progress of dehumanization. But such changes are small compared with those which would necessarily be involved in the physiological alterations which I have suggested. So this is this is 1929, and and essentially I, I I've you know have this conversation with my friend Cliff, and it's sort of like it feels like they want human life to be, come a sensing like a, a a distributed decentralized network of a sensing organ for some sort of machine consciousness, and the origin of that I you know depending on your cosmology and worldview might come from different places, um, but that's what it sounds like they're talking about like get rid of the water stuff the, or carbon like it's not really very portable and move into this new phase. This is Trent McConaughey. Uh, Trent McConaughey is with Ocean Protocol. Ocean Protocol is a uh, they call call themselves sort of like a public utility platform for blockchain, where all of the impact data that's going to be connected to these games played on human capital finance and uh, environmental social governance investment products, the impact data to verify those deals will be stored on blockchain ledgers and made available in an anonymized format for access for big data analytics and AI machine learning. Uh, very connected to many in the tech space. and. Um, uh, including singularity net and they're building this singularity um, with this data through the, the 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 pools of data collected and he's here he's talking about this idea of interplanetary colonization and and beyond right so why stop at mars what about exploring the cosmos now there's a there's a hitch you might think you know we've got earth we've got mars and uh, beyond that though the next closest planet is proxima centauri it's four light years away but at maximum speeds of today's uh, travel flights, it will take 81,000 years. Oops. So, um, and Charlie Strauss, the sci-fi author, I love this quote, he says, sending canned primates was never going to end happily, right? We're basically primates in tin cans flying around the cosmos. So taking 81,000 years to get there is probably not gonna work. So, um, I could expand this slide into a whole talk, and I have before, but 
there is a lot of reason to see, can we migrate our minds into a better substrate, right? My view is, as humans, it's not about my body, it's about my mind, my patterns of thought that are in my brain and my body and how they're manifested, right? Um, and then, once we have that, we can explore the cosmos. And there's at least two credible ways. There's uploads, and this is a question of brain scanning that gets higher and higher um, resolution over time. And then a bandwidth plus plus scenario. Think like iPhone 25. Once we go beyond the, the smartphones where we're talking with texting, uh, we can keep going. So there are some um, credible ways to get here. It's not, nothing in the next five years, but 20, 30, 50 years from now, 100. This is where we could be heading. And this is great because what it means is we can explore the cosmos. And oh, by the way, if AI ever does wake up, that's OK, because now we have a competitive substrate. And again, this, this guy isn't a cognitive neuroscience, but he's connected with all of these people that I will, I will sort of touch on. So um, again, this is, so this is Bernal. So this is the read aloud that I just did on, on the one side. That's him with this water molecule setup that he made. Uh, and then later, his envisionment of space colonization. This gentleman is a Russian billionaire, although I don't think he's really the guy doing it. I think he's just the guy standing in front of this project. And I wanted to include this. This is connected to Avatar 2045, this idea that we'll have a whole body prosthetic. And at the, the end, Stuart Hameroff that I'm going to be talking about is a signatory to this project. A life which could be more happier because it could be free from suffering, from physical suffering. We're trying to create the avatar bodies, artificial bodies, which will allow us to live longer, to overcome our limitations. So I'm creating the concept which can further cause the public demand. I'm, I'm attracting best experts and I'm using their knowledge and their uh, expertise to be sure that we're going uh, to the right direction. You, you saw Shiguro's uh, robot and yeah, was created several years ago and the technology has been developed and new materials have been developed, new artificial muscles, uh, new servers. So there's no doubt about the idea that in the nearest future we'll have, we'll have very human-like android robotics. So the first uh, avatar, avatar A, they could transfer the sensory data from uh, their limbs to our body and they could provide us with the telepresence effect. And this technology, I think, could be even more interesting than uh, having the sort of artificial intelligence in front, of you, in front of you, because this will solve some problems in tourism, in transportation. And you have a full telepresence in that body, so you literally live in that body. And if you have a health issue, if you have some fatal diagnosis, why don't you continue living in that body? So I'm trying to create the mechanism which will be very similar in terms of sensations, but the mechanism which will be more reliable, more capable, and uh, which will be more easy to repair. There, there is no need to stick to a certain form of, of the body, but I believe that we should start with a transition which will provide us the uh, with the opportunity to, to go to the body, which is very similar to this one, because the shape of the body, the form of it, very much affects the personality. We are not even ready to become immortal human beings. We have to fix this mental side of our 
humanitarian nature. We need to become better to 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 be uh, to be able even to use the technology of the artificial body, the avatar technology properly. And then, when we are, you know, strong, when we have good enough spiritual muscles, we can discover something new. So Drew is right. <laughs> this is a spiritual engagement that we're in. Like when he ends saying, we need to get right here and we need to exercise our spiritual muscles, I feel very strongly that this is something that this mechanical emergence, whatever this is, is trying to, to get a soul. It's, it is trying to get that. And so when it says, we want you to put yourself into our machine and be spiritual or have emotion, it's because it's trying to get at something it can't get at. So this is, I think this is a, a good follow-up on just the, the brands, the branding of this. Uh, let me think. Um, because I think, in, you know, one of the clips in, in a lot of the narrative is talking about um, like the Chinese social credit score uh, versus democracy. And I think it's really important to understand the polarization and the branding because they kind of, this, this, this new program is, it is on every level and they're actually interested in making us their, um, the embryo of their planetary democracy. <laughs> and so I would say, especially for people who are maybe coming from the more patriot conservative side to understand the way in which democracy is going to be changing and it's going to be linked to blockchain and this idea they will sell it on radical participatory voting. Uh, a lot of this also has to do with quadratic voting and what they call liquid democracy. And so what they will say is everyone will vote on everything only that's impossible because it would be hundreds of things a day. And so what they will do is they will assign your virtual twin to an AI that will vote, vote on your behalf. So later on when I talk about this outside in robot um, in the sensor network is that they're setting up quote unquote to remake democracy as part of a smart contract layer on blockchain. Blockchain is a permanent ledger that is decentralized and secure, as they say, although there's lots of hacks in these side chains. But essentially, it's a node of interoperable data um, that can be used to represent individuals or societies, the smart cities. They will have digital twins that are represented through data held on blockchain, these ledger systems. And they want to put all of government electronic, they want to make electronic government shift in that direction, put it on blockchain and have it run on big data analytics. So I just, um, here, this, this book, uh, it's called The World Sensorium, The Social Embryology of World Federation, 1946. It was written by Oliver Reiser. He was a professor of philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh um, and connected with many people. He was there for 40 years. He retired in the late 60s. Um, and his book lays this out. This is the year um, right after the United Nations was founded and he was in, like this was sort of laying out the United Nations program. Uh, but on page 31, it says, um, they're talking about the creation of a world brain, a global superorganism that would be our interconnected mental states. And, and I think when we hear about situations that are happening either in terms of medical policy or um, public planning, urban built environment policy that would be contrary to 
long-term health of the population and why it doesn't seem to make sense. But if you link it to what I'm saying about Bernal, that the goal, this is a eugenics program, a forced evolution into a different state of existence. And that they are currently using our embodied state to extract as much data as possible in an organized fashion to try to manifest this a soul into this other thing like and i can't explain where it comes from or, but that's they don't actually want robust health to fight back this thing and so when we say that doesn't make sense why would you do things that would make people sick and ultimately like chronically ill and whatever it's it's because they don't imagine humanity over the long run continuing in the current form and this is something that's been going for a while so it just says writing on the surge of a great seminal wave of formative energy america at last reveals herself in the hugely dramatic setting of world embryology she is the matrix of a planetary democracy a mode of social evolution precipitating a skeletal structure which shall be the architectonic of a universal humanism a world sensorium for a new civilization and, and that's what y'all are sort of birthing here. And, um, you know, I do want to point out my last talk that I gave was situating this in place and that the Apache Wars that took place in southern Arizona with it, it, it was in the name of civilization and progress, right? Like it was the removal of an existing civilization to make way for a new civilization. And what I'm saying is like that continuity of the civilizing process, the logic of it is extended towards we will shed our, you know, water-based, carbon-based units for some sort of photonic optical communication. And that's, and I'm not saying right or wrong, but that's just the logic of how these things are going. So just to hit on, you know, space exploration, you guys are very big into this, this space, and also the, 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 um, the biosphere too. Um, the fact that, that this, this closed environment, this plan, that was for space colonization. That has been managed as a homeostatic environmental system. That is, and that's been going on for some time. Um, the L5 Society, I've mentioned them, Carolyn Minel and her husband, uh, they were promoting, this is in the 70s, uh, the space colonization program, not from some kooky outlandish thing. These were Princeton physicists who were planning this. This is very much linked with the radio astronomy that, that is happening. And, and her father, Aiden uh, Minel, uh, helped create the, the Kitts Peak Observatory and was a leader in the development of optics uh, here in, in this, this part of the state. And, and th that legacy of optics and photonic development continues today. There's the impact plan, the economic impact plan from 2021 to 2024, like that lar larger trajectory from the 60s. Uh, Minel came out of Caltech and, and, and came down here. So literally the industry that is sustaining the community is wedded to this pro progressive program. <laughs> you know. Right or wrong, that's just how the forces are in play. And um, if you look at this report from 1999 about optics, it's sort of laying out the sensor technology. Like, 
we, we were just talking about the 5G infrastructure and the microwave radiation, but all of these optical sensors, the next wave of computing is light-based, right? We're, we're switching from the, the wired-based to photonics, and optics and photonics are really, really central to what you are about here in this part of the labyrinth. And the sensing and the actuating of the sensors on the world. So this diagram behind me is the world homeostat. It was, uh, this is from a talk in the late 80s given in San Francisco to the Baha'i by Irvin Laszlo, a very prominent systems theorist, originally from Hungary and later out of one of the SUNY schools in New York. Um, he had been devising this idea of a closed system, the world as a cybernetic circuit that needs management through sensors and actuators to be calibrated. And so when I say like that the Manhattan Project segued into the Human Genome Project, the radioisotopes that were developed at Oak Ridge in, during the Cold War in the environmental movement. The environmental movement of the United States was birthed out of Oak Ridge National Lab and the Atomic Energy Commission, where they used radioisotopes to track energy transfer and metabolism through environmental systems. So the original track and trace were these radioactive isotopes, like used intentionally and strategically to track environments, and then of course humans as part of this environmental element. So the, the, the limits to growth in the 70s, right, is built into this idea of a cybernetic managed environment and a world homeostat. And what Laszlo told to the Baha'i, he said, you guys are the, gonna be the leaders in this because your faith is built on science. And so what I'm saying is like the actuators of building the networked information system to run the globe like Biosphere 2 is going to be coming in the, a smart contract layer of blockchain, that it is a, um, a global governance layer of logic that is programmed into the built environment, into these sensor networks, which is what is the foundational economic growth of this area of the country. Um, it is going to be like the world run as HAL 9000s, only they will give you some tokens to hand to your AI to vote in the planetary democracy, right? But it will be HAL 9000 that is running this. Um, so if we could, this is just a one minute clip. Um, this is from a gentleman, his name is Juan Benet. He is with Protocol Labs. Uh, Jason and I have done a lot of discussions about him in, in coordination with my co our colleague, uh, Leo Saracino, about this logic board installation to push humanity forward. Uh, this is linked, the image next to me is from the creation of a world constitution in 1946 out of the University of Chicago. Okay, so that gives the whole Chicago boys, Milton Friedman school of like shock and awe and like management, economic management, a, a new, element. So just, I'll just close with this short clip. If you want the world to ratchet up into a better system, you have to make it drastically easier to use. You have to make it more convenient. Users will not select privacy. Users will not select um, security. Users will select convenience and fun. Oftentimes people dismiss the, the requirements, but it's, it's important that you think about your superpowers as riding on top of a massive scale international um, computing infrastructure that's run by a set of corporations. So the, the application stack and the personal computing devices, those end up being manufactured and controlled by various different groups. There's probably a problem there in terms of the number of manufacturers for computing devices. We probably need a lot more groups uh, to do that. However, it's extremely difficult. Now, the layers below are actually pretty good. When you think about the openness of the internet and the openness of the networks, that's working quite well. The problem sits below. 
the way that the internet is steered today is through a series of contracts, terms of services, and the action of various corporations and courts around the world. Those contracts can change very easily. Those courts can decide things in the future that are different from the past. So what we need to really upgrade our systems is to create a layer that won't change, that has hard requirements for change, that has a much stronger foundation. We want math, cryptography, and economics to, be, to underlie the structure of the internet, to underlie the security of our communications network, and to guarantee your future access to these communication systems. I think most of you have not been in, in, a, in a country that suddenly overnight disabled the internet, but more and more people every day are encountering that kind of experience. And it could happen anywhere. So these kinds of infrastructure improvements can lead to public international digital utilities. Don't think of them as corporations. Think of them as a utility that is there for the benefit of all, for, for the benefit of all of humanity, not run by any one group, but run by the math, by the cryptography, and by the economics behind them. Through that, we can establish these digital human rights. And from there, we should get them ratified. But I think it's, we're in a moment where we should build them first uh, and ratify them second. So that's why a lot of us are working on Web3. So that's what the 5G networks are for. It's for the international public utility to run the world on logic. So we just wanted to mention this next 10 minutes that I'm going to talk about is a bit about gamification. And within these various scenarios, it's really important for the data to be aggregated about how you relate to material in the digital realms. So like later on, I'm going to show an image about this ant-based simulation, which is a computational model of social interactions. But I just ask you to reflect on the past two and a half years, like given the nature of some of the questions, and consider how the resistance space has been managed, the various divisions, the various parties, the various influencers, the different narratives that are put out, and understand that all of that is being watched and fed back in feedback loops. And so within the idea of managing populations and reinforcing certain circuits, any information, but clearly within the past two and a half years and the topic many people are here today, are related to population management within the digital space. And I'm not saying anybody's right or anybody's wrong, but it's very clear that there are certain like tensions in that space, um, particularly maybe you know in you know, terrain theory or other things where they have been monitoring how those people have been responding and where the groups break out. Um, and that's all being saved away for future management purposes. So, so the outside in robot, I've talked a little bit about this. This is all gamified at a very high level, you know, high level computing, supercomputers. A lot of this came out in starting in the 1980s when the access to supercomputing systems came more out of the military and became more widely available. Uh, the image behind me, this is a, the Friday poker game at Los Alamos. Um, I think the guy with the arrow is Stan Ulam who helped develop the hydrogen bomb, but at the table is George Cowan. Uh, he uh, was part of the early institution. I think he was at the... Um, uh, Met Lab in Chicago, but was part of the Manhattan Project and then helped fund the Santa Fe Institute in the late 1980s. And a lot of what they were working on is complexity theory because this is about managing complex systems into this sort of emergent organism. Uh, on, on the other side is John Holland. He is the father of genetic algorithms. And so many of these things, once we've reduced life to computational molecular biology, 
like it doesn't really matter what bits and parts you're moving around, whether you understand it as like organic life or something else, like it's, the game is in, man in the management of it. So whether you're managing algorithms for hedge fund markets or for cancer treatments, like it all starts to get distilled down into computational equations and like both with complexity and the gaming. Um, I've talked about the outside in robot. I think we've been trained to think about robots as like, I don't know, you know, the Star Wars robots or, you know, Sophia the humanoid robot or the Boston Dynamics robot dog or your Roomba. But really, I think that the robot we should be paying closer attention to is the sensor network. Um, the paper on the one side is talking about uh, the interface with mixed reality, right? It's not just you're gonna live in the metaverse in a VR headset. What, what's really coming is they want us to perform humanity like live action role play in a sensor network. They want us to perform how it is to be human so that it can sort of suck that data out of how individual humans, their emotional states, their biological states, their, their networking states, and feed it into like the machine. And so there's this, like, I think it's quite compelling, this sort of little ghost puppet figure in the back with the smart kitchen, with all the smart sensor appliances. And for me, like, that's the outside robot, whether it's in your kitchen or it's in all the 5G towers or the other kind of microwave sensors that are in the smart environments, city environments that are coming. Um, and let me see, this paper, like, it's, well, it's hard for me to turn around and see it, but it does talk about it as an outside-in robot. And like, it's like an infant, where infants learn by like putting stuff in its mouth and crawling around and experiencing it that. I feel like we're at this early stage of AI where it's like a toddler. And it's like using us like the wooden blocks in a nursery school that like get built up and knocked down and stuck in the mouth and colored on with crayons. Like we're training it, but it's hard to know how quickly the progression will go from the toddler AI to something that's much more intrusive and sophisticated. So another thing, it's interesting, Russ, that you had that Hatch Education play table in your slide deck too. So that's the thing that really struck out at me is this, what they're doing is they're having ch uh, preschoolers play at a t play table with fisheye lens cameras. They're supposed to play together socially and then have their behavior scored based on video and audio recorded at that play table. It's a, and it's a digital experience. It's not even like tactile, right? And my early investigations into this was related to betting on human capital futures through hedge funds. Uh, the he Heckman equation, he uh, James Heckman at the University of Chicago, Nobel Prize winning economist said, um, we're gonna bet on children. We can't change their cognitive numbers that much on a dashboard, but we can change character. And so they're gonna do that through digital media and learning. Uh, these play tables are in use at Educare franchise pre-Ks. Some of them are through Head Start programs. Again, there's a huge push for universal pre-K to get it all standardized. But that's the kind of place that you would find these play tables in. Um, the data that's pulled out, it was unclear to me whether the, the teachers were not scoring the kids based on the video, it was somewhere else. Whether that was a person offshore in the Philippines scoring the children, um, or if it was AI, it's, it's still not clear to me what where Hatch Education outsources their scoring systems. Um, 
but ultimately it's going to a digital twin. And at first when I heard about the digital twin, you, you can look up Nippon Telegraph and Telephone, NTT. They have very robust systems of digitally twinning cities and also human digital twins and all of the value that that will unlock as data. I kind of pictured like a Barbie doll or like, I don't know, like a little miniature minifig kind of thing that represents you. Um, but actually once I was introduced to this idea of a, the Voronoi pattern or Voronoi polyhedra, it's like a multi, of course they would represent us mathematically, right? It would be a math, because we're dealing in math. And what they're, if you imagine your digital twin, this is from LearnCard. LearnCard is a digital wallet for the future economy based on your learning. But whatever you learn, the AI is learning too. And they want you to earn credit for earning badges, both for emotional badges and cognitive badges. I think this will likely ultimately segue into UBI, like there will be some basic UBI that you have to commit to ongoing reskilling. Um, but that it's also embedded in this wallet, this is through the World Bank uh, program of uh, blockchain education. It has a driver's license, it has um, you know, your passport. So they're linking your geolocation data and your mobility into your currency and your knowledge base. And this will also be for gig work, like AI assigning you gig telepresence work. But I think that all of the data will be refined to you as that prism. And you can see there's a wire frame on the outside of it. And that wire frame is a plane of influence. So if you imagine that's an economic influence, that's a social, a peer group influence, that's a, a, a work-based influence, that's an education, that's a mental health. They can start pushing and pulling on individuals to reconform them, um, stretch them in the direction they want them to be stretched. Not necessarily, it could be internally, it could be voice to skull, it could be some of these frequencies, or it could just be like someone cuts you off in traffic. Like once they can orchestrate the outside in robot, they could, set you up for a day where you miss the bus and your kid throws up at school and something else happens and then you, then you contort to fit in the plane of this mechanical experience. So this is real, like these are not far out. This is coming and I think again within the health space we're really focused on like let me look at every single new thing about the health policy and I'm saying guys it's linked into all of this and and I came in the education door so I'm paying a lot of attention to this. This is a one minute clip from Michael Crow again at um, Arizona State University. I showed it last year but just re-emphasize re that it's about gaming education but in the gaming it is like us LARPing life for the machine. We have 150 partnerships. We've built a learning platform that's unparalleled. We launched a program in August just to offer a few courses to some folks. On a global basis, we had 192 countries respond. Over 120,000 learners for the first couple courses that we put out. We had 12-year-olds in Peru complete college astronomy courses for credit. I don't know what that means. It means something. We've got about, I had a meeting yesterday with uh, Bill Gates in, in San Diego as a part of the ASU GSV uh, innovation conference on educational technology that we had 3,600 people attend uh, yesterday and, and I was walking through uh, with uh, Mr. Gates the uh, fourth realm that we're presently operating in which is education through exploration through game-based learning or just imagine this at the end of the game and we, we're building this game at the end of the game you don't take a single test you don't take a single course you don't have a single lecturer and at the end of the game that you play, you'll be able to pass 
any college entrance exam, or what we call Cambridge A-level exams, anyone that completes the game, boy, girl, doesn't make any difference, any A-level exam in math, chemistry, physics, or biology. Period. What does that mean for learning? So it's important to know that Michael Crow was the founding board chair of InQtel, and InQtel is the venture capital arm of the CIA. Okay, so when you're playing the game, um, InQtel funded Niantic, which is augmented reality, which was behind Pokemon Go. So when you're playing the game in the world and the outside in robot, to replicate a digital twin of what it means to be you as a unique agent in the game, and this game is around complexity theory and it's tied to financial markets, and these financial markets are run on these genetic algorithms. And, you know, as Russ said, it's an algorithm. Like, what we're dealing with soon is going to be things like Aladdin's, BlackRock's Aladdin com supercomputer running portfolios, global portfolios that are connected to actuators in the environment to shape your future. And, um, and this is going to be framed in the education space as human capital pipelines, career, college, like career, cradle to career, strive together is in over 70 communities around the country now. It is an extension of Knowledge Works, which was pushing decentralized education systems. Um, and strive together is here in Pima County, and uh, it's it's you know again they frame it as a pathway, and that pathway is cybernetics. It is a is a program. It is to keep you on the path. Now you can veer a little bit off the path, but if you go too far off, you're gonna get bumped back in. And what people need to know is, in the education space, that game, they want that game to be in your house. They want that game to be in the city because they get more data. The plan was always to deconstruct public schools. So while many people are feeling like, let me pull my kid out of school, which you know, I understand because of health requirements or other things that you may feel that's the best option, but just know that the complexity theory modelers always planned for you to get outside of those buildings and to be trackable in the smart environment. That was part of the plan. So now we have to figure out knowing that that's part of the plan to create holons of like-minded people, whether you're somebody who wants to like go off grid and live in an eco village, or if you're somebody who wants to like be with the Cato Institute and do like a conservative Latin classical education online, like they have something for every flavor and then they're going to symphonize those into the thing that they think is this global superorganism. Now, I'm not a nihilist, I'm not, before lunch. I'm not saying I think it's all going to happen, but I think we need to sort of see the trajectory so we can step through the labyrinth and not get tangled up in it. So um, earlier we, we mentioned about blockchain. A lot of people are familiar with the blockchain technology, the distributed ledger through this the, the crypto space. Um, and because I came in the door of education and that they wanted to put preschoolers on blockchain as a human capital commodity, I was never a fan. <laughs> the way a lot of people who have been dabbling in crypto um, have for quite a number of years. But I understand all of the many other versions of blockchain that are coming um, from beyond education transcripts, but the healthcare records, the digital driver's licenses, and even things as crazy sounding as brain-computer interface information run on blockchain. So this is the section I want to touch a little bit on about consciousness, because I think essentially 
their intention of remaking us as machine-readable organized information is that the blockchain technology is central to that and like the neural transfers in our mind. So on the one side, I have um, the science of consciousness, and uh, Tucson has been a center for consciousness studies since the mid-90s, which is really interesting, and Stuart Hameroff is one of the key figures in that. And then on the other side of the screen um, is a section of a paper from Melanie Swan. Uh, she's uh, at Purdue University and also I'm not sure if it's the London School of Economics, but her focus is essentially creating minds using blockchain, and she calls them cloud minds. And this idea that we will enter into communal minds with other people or possibly other things and have it mediated on blockchain so that the intellectual property that we offer up with while we are in a cloud mind is properly credited to us for some future program. And I think this has to do with planned teaming and the telepresence labor economy that they're looking to craft eclectic teams of people with different life experiences to look at their complex problems um, in new ways. And that blockchain is a way of tracking your intellectual property contribution across time is what's coming. And this, this paper from her is from 2016. So these are things um, most people can't even imagine that it's a possibility of something we should be concerned about or talking about, um, but they are, are Real. So um, I mentioned that early, earlier, the clip with the Russian billionaire talking about 2045, 20, 20, the you know whole body prosthetic. Well, Hamroff is is signed up, aligned with that program. Um, I think when you imagine the idea of putting our mind into a remote robot, which is the next phase of telepresence global labor, um, at the top, that's from Sanctuary AI, that's based out of Burnaby in um, outside, of, it's a suburb of Vancouver, and Suzanne Gildert, essentially you have a VR headset and haptic controllers that remotely activate a robot, and that's called piloting, and that's, they're imagining a future where like many retail service workers, um, swap out between an AI interaction and a human pilot. Um, and so, but meanwhile, all of that data, like as we're inhabiting the body and moving our body and moving its body, it's like learning us, learning how to be that kind of person. Uh, there's a less humanoid version that's in Japan. They, they say it's being used to stock cooling things in like convenience stores, but again, like why not just give like a high school kid that job, you know? But that that's the future that is sort of coming. And I think a lot of it is about this sort of mind-body problem and consciousness and embodiment, like they're trying to give the robots bodies and make us into mind, like digital mind files. Um, on the blockchain, this is something that's come up within the past year, is this idea of a soul-bound token. Again, they're pretty obvious about what they're saying. Um, this is in contrast to an NFT or a non-fungible token in that it's not an object that can be transferred or sale or sold as a, as a digital item, uh, as a unique digital asset, but rather it is bestowed upon you and it can be revoked. But my understanding of these soul-bound tokens is that they would say it would be something like you attend this conference today and boom, 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 I like award you all soul-bound tokens in your digital wallet that you were here. And so forever on after, unless I revoke it, it's known. And my understanding of these as I see them is that these are metadata tags uh, for digital identities and so that they can pull that and it will be linked to things like uh, interventions with human capital finance, right? That they do an intervention with a preschooler and then they'll be able to track it 35 years later if they end up in drug rehab or something like that. It's this layers of tokens. Um, Glenn Weil, he's the guy at the top. He's the 
Microsoft's Octopest, <laughs> and this other woman below, uh, uh, Puha Olhaver, I think, and Victalik Buterin. But they're the people who were chosen to front this concept, but I think really it probably goes back at least to the 1990s and sort of early smart contracting. This is uh, supposedly a leaked video from Google called The Selfish Ledger. It's sort of about Lamarckian uh, epigenetics as a contrast to neo-Darwinian evolution, and I believe that this is your blockchain mind file. When we use contemporary technology, a trail of information is created in the form of data. When analyzed, it describes our actions, decisions, preferences, movement, and relationships. This codified version of who we are becomes ever more complex, developing, changing, and deforming based on our actions. In this regard, this ledger of our data may be considered a Lamarckian epigenome, a constantly evolving representation of who we are. This is Bill Hamilton, one of the most significant evolutionary theorists of the 20th century. His work studying the social structures of ants, bees, and wasps had a profound effect on our understanding of the role of genes in social behaviors such as altruism. He believed and went on to prove that the driving force behind evolution was not the individual, but the gene. He stated that the ultimate criterion which determines whether a gene will spread is not whether the behavior is to the benefit of the behavior, but whether it is to the benefit of the gene. In this model, the individual organism is a transient carrier, a survival machine for the gene. What if the ledger could be given a volitional purpose rather than simply acting as an historical reference? What if we focused on creating a richer ledger by introducing more sources of information? What if we thought of ourselves not as the owners of this information, but as custodians, transient carriers, or caretakers? Initially, the notion of a goal-oriented ledger may be user-driven, as an organization, Google would be responsible for offering suitable targets for a user's ledger. Whilst the notion of a global good is problematic, topics would likely focus on health or environmental impact to reflect Google's values as an organization. Once the user selects a volition for their ledger, every interaction may be compared to a series of parallel options. As this line of thinking accelerates and the notion of a goal-driven ledger becomes more palatable, suggestions may be converted not by the user, but by the ledger itself. In this case, the ledger is missing a key data source, which it requires in order to better understand this user. In order to plug the gap in its knowledge, the ledger begins searching for a device which delivers the required data when used. From this list, the ledger begins sorting the options most likely to appeal to the user in question. In situations where no suitable product is found, the ledger may investigate a bespoke solution by analyzing historical data, it is increasingly possible to discern qualitative information such as taste and aesthetic sensibility, which may be used in the creation of a design proposal. With the advent of technologies such as CNC milling and the emergent possibilities of 3D printing, a custom object may be created to trigger this user's interest. In this way, the ledger is able to plug gaps in its knowledge and refine its model of human behavior. User data has the capability to survive beyond the limits of our biological selves in much the same way as genetic code is released and propagated in nature. By considering this data through a Lamarckian lens, the codified experiences within the ledger become an accumulation of behavioral knowledge throughout the life of an individual. By thinking of user data as multi-generational, it becomes possible for emerging users to benefit from the preceding generation's behaviors and decisions. As new users enter an ecosystem, 
they begin to create their own trail of data. By comparing this emergent ledger with the mass of historical user data, it becomes possible to make increasingly accurate predictions about decisions and future behaviors. As cycles of collection and comparison extend, it may be possible to develop a species-level understanding of complex issues such as depression, health, and poverty. As these streams of information are brought together, the effect is multiplied. New patterns become apparent and new predictions become possible. Just as the examination of protein structures paved the way to genetic sequencing, the mass multi-generational examination of actions and results could introduce a model of behavioral sequencing. As gene sequencing yields a comprehensive map of human biology, researchers are increasingly able to target parts of the sequence and modify them in order to achieve a desired result. As patterns begin to emerge in the behavioral sequences, they too may be targeted. The ledger could be given a focus, shifting it from a system which not only tracks our behavior, but offers direction towards a desired result. We are at the very beginning of our journey of understanding in the field of user data. By applying our knowledge of epigenetics, inheritance, and memetics to this field, we may be able to make mental leaps in our understanding, which could offer benefits to this generation, to future generations, and the species as a whole. So over lunch, I had somebody who was sort of asking like what the goal was or what the incentive of, was for rich people, you know, to do these things. And, you know, I think that there is some something out there that believes that it needs to use us as an armature to like build out some sort of superhuman, super organism that exists. And um, when you understand things as a goal-driven ledger with prediction and risk and guiding, this is all stuff I want to keep you to keep in mind the next section when we look at the ant computer, the way in which we can be guided through the sensor technology in ways that we don't even realize. And, you know, I've, I've had situations happen to me over the last couple years of, you know, being in social media circles with, with people that I thought I knew that all of a sudden have some unexpected behavior. Uh, things happen that, that aren't logical, like in the real world. And so you have to wonder as we navigate this information, um, landmines, you know, all of how this steering is happening and that the goal is to track all outcomes. Like they don't actually really mind that there's lot, that there is resistance, right? As long as they can track it and calculate it into the program, they, they're fine with some resistance. And so I think that's why I feel like in, it matters the story that we inhabit the story that I'm offering you for you to try on and consider is that this is a game, it's a eugenics-based game of sort of super evolutionary processes that are digitally mediated, that most people aren't aware of, and that are being gamed at every level tied to finance and social control and our innermost relations and our consciousness. And that's a very different conversation. I think if we tried on that lens and more people were exploring that with relation to Web3, the outside-in robot and blockchain tokens, uh, we would be a little bit farther along and really understanding how to better navigate the labyrinth. So just in closing, that these are some papers. Um, Stuart Hameroff, he was already working on biomolecular consciousness and nanotech in the late 80s. <laughs> You know, I, I'm sure, I mean, and this is stuff that's not top secret, right, that the public can get. So, like, imagine the other stuff that's out there. Um, he and Roger Penrose have this idea of quantum consciousness that's connected to sort of microtubules and this idea that consciousness is sort of an emergent thought layer that's in line with uh, Talhard Desjardins, uh, who posited the omega point and 
Christogenesis and uh, Vladimir Vernadsky, who was a biogeochemist. So these ideas have been floating out there since the 20s and 30s. They're just trying to access it. Um, so one of uh, the, the a lot of money has come in from the Fetzer Institute for this work on consciousness and the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation is located outside of Philadelphia. John Templeton made his money in mutual fund creations. He gave up his US citizenship in the 80s, moved to the Bahamas, became a British citizen, was knighted by the queen, and his foundations fund high-level physics, uh, free markets, genius, character development, and religion. And so this is very important for all the people out there who imagine themselves sort of conservative, libertarian patriots. Um, the guys who are running the Blockchain Mindfall Project, they're really interested in all of that too. <laughs> um, John Fetzer, actually he grew up in uh, studying radios. He was self-taught in a radio pioneer. He made a bunch of money in Michigan. He's based out of Kalamazoo for many years. He owned the Detroit Tigers. He was a beloved figure on paper. He was raised Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, he was a Presbyterian for business purposes, but he was deeply involved in spiritualism, in um, channeling, in Ouija boards, um, in all sorts of stuff. And so uh, Fetzer's Institute is involved in all of that. But again, centered on love and peace and all of that. But if you substitute the world homeostat for peace, you get a little bit more of an angle. Um, so they're both pouring money into these works. Uh, the Temple Foundation at, at the bottom, that's, that's an image from the Berggruen Institute. M Nicholas Berggruen is a billionaire financier slash philosopher who wants to build a monastery outside in the Santa Monica Mountains. And um, he's studying uh, early modern magic with a UCLA emeritus professor. Like, you can't make this stuff up. So the thing is, Fetzer actually uh, spent his winters at a ranch in Tucson. Um, if any of you guys know where the Fetzer Ranch in Tucson was, I think it was sold in the 90s after his passing to fund the foundation. Um, but he did a lot of his channeling work um, here in Tucson. And I, I think that there is something to, you know, there is stuff about magnetism and frequency and waves. And um, uh, Clearly, it feels like Southern Arizona is a center for a lot of these energetics. So anyway, just another part of your labyrinth. <laughs> Some of the next stuff I'm talking about is this smart contract layer. And I would say, like, I, I come forth asking for people across the political spectrum, if you value the Constitution, we need more people looking into smart contracts because ultimately, if they install a logic layer between us and everything in the world, whatever rights we imagine we have under the Constitution, they will be impenetrable. We will not break through that layer of smart contract arbitration to get to it. Now, I would love to have seen, like many people who identify themselves as constitutionalists to be unpacking what smart contract law means for people and digital identity and cyber-physical systems and goal-directed behavior. I'm not seeing that. I'm not. And, and I would love to know why. Like, I've been in a number of Western conservative states where people are very much about the Constitution. They don't seem to know a lot about Web3. And that's a problem. So I would just invite, if that's something that you hold dear wherever you are in the political spectrum in the process, that if you're not understanding the layer of international arbitration that's coming through AI, whatever old-timey things you want to imagine are going to be irrelevant because we're going to be living in a state of exception. 
So that's just the framing. I'm going to read a, a little section here from World Sensorium about planetary democracy. Um, for one thing, it seems clear that democracy has been waiting for the development of some of our most recent inventions in order to become really effective. Now, what works government from Michael Bloomberg is really central to all of this. What kinds of changes in the social applications of new inventions and techniques will be required is a problem to be investigated, but it is clear that if we are able to secure a swift and intelligent reaction of the electorate on immediate issues, we must utilize radio, television, and airplane. Okay, this is 1946. In our air era and ether age, does not the slow machinery of old time elections uh, with campaign speeches and the setting up of electoral procedure seem out of date? Again, this is 1946, pre-social media. Imagine the field day social media and DARPA has with all of this. If so, don't we need to devise new methods of summing up public opinion much nearer to the sources of reaction? The Citizens Forum, the Gallup poll idea, or something else will somehow have to be coordinated with our older methods of balloting or replace them entirely. Perhaps even the ration book idea could be extended, and each year every citizen of voting age could be issued a book of coupons, which would cover so many events of public concern for that year. Instead of our present elaborate electoral machinery, each individual would be allowed to vote wherever he is by turning in a coupon at a fixed government station for the record recording of public opinion. And when a crisis arises, it can be discussed by radio and television with the citizens directly in their homes or public forums. Zoom public meetings, anyone? In international affairs, voting could be done through representative regional bodies when action is necessary, as in famine, epidemics, uprisings, air patrols could go into action swiftly. All of this may sound slightly premature, but surely there are problems here worthy of investigation. I mean, how can democracy use science? And how can science be democratized in its applications? Only an international institute could give an answer in theory, test the theory out in practice, revise the theory in light of results by means of the circular reaction arcs that reach together around the world. Science and planetism must be welded together. Okay? That's liquid democracy, folks. Sorry. That, that's coming. That's the smart contract layer. And actually, it's probably been in development at least since the late 19th century by the Smiley Brothers on the Mohonk House on the Hudson with Andrew Carnegie. And it's going to be framed as peace and international arbitration. That's your smart contract law. So, in the game, we are all agents in the simulation. They like to bring agents together in teams, interesting teams, access the adjacent possible, and then break the teams down and start over until they get the information they want. The playing field of the game is the commons. You'll hear a lot about public goods and commoning. That's the game board. All of this stuff that we're talking, I've been talking about today is framed as a public good, a digital public good. And the venture capitalist class are coming up with new ways of financing it retroactively. So they're just paying for results. And things like brain-computer interfaces will be reframed as a public good. And your 5G sensor networks will be reframed as a public good. The open-air prison will be framed as a public good and financed by venture capital so that they make money, not only on the infrastructure, but on betting on our compliant behavior behavior in the game. So yes, they call it socio-technical systems. Democratic governance of socio-technical systems. Spend some time, look that up. That's important. All of this stuff that we're dealing with, with like breaking down of 
civic institutions, elected politicians going rogue, terrible behavior, stolen elections, all of that narrative is a buildup to HAL 9000. It just is. Um, they call it futarchy. Uh, Robin Hansen developed this uh, in around 2000. Uh, there was more a, a recent paper by Vitalik Buter and the same guy behind the soul-bound tokens. So essentially what they're talking about is assigning your ballot to a proxy vote. So you will have that coupon that they talk about in here in 1946. You will have maybe 300 coupons a day that you're responsible for and you proxy out your interest to people like the Sierra Club or your nephew in the military or your third grade teacher. They literally talk about it like that and they'll vote for you on all of these topics. But ultimately, as in the other image, the goal is that you will have a robot and this is by Cesar Rodalgo. He has a nice TED talk about it. Um, it's going to be so much more convenient and effective and efficient to simply vote on everything and through tokenization on the blockchain. And you know, I went out and I, I can't remember. You know, the, the various nonprofits like, oh, the elections are being stolen, voter repression, da da da. I said, well, if you actually really cared, truly cared about democracy, you would figure this stuff out. This isn't hidden. This is out in the open. Governance, blockchain governance for socio-technical systems with robots. <laughs> and you're out on, standing on the street corners begging for money for your NGO, and you don't even tell people what's really happening. That's a problem. Because how can informed electorate make any decision if they don't even know the game they're in or what the rules are? These people know where it's being driven. So um, among these people, block science is one of the one of the key blockchain players, it's also involved with common stack. Again, this is all talking about commoning, the socio-technical commoning. Um, his name is Michael Zargam. Well, he got his PhD uh, in electrical engineering from Penn Engineering out my way in Philadelphia, because yeah, I'm from the land of the Constitution, right? Because it's supposed to protect us from all this stuff. Only most of his PhD uh, funding in, what is it, complex systems, epistemology, ethics, math, engineering, and society came from the military, from the army and the navy, okay? So he's working on making your governance machine readable. I mean, you can look at some of the, the papers and the things. It's DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. This is all being set up. And he's now in, um, in Tempe. That's where his addresses the SEC filing for block science, and you should look that up actually, and the Common Stack project. It's three guys, it's three houses. One is in South Philly, one is in South Jersey and like Gloucester, and, and this, this guy's in Tempe, okay? So this is being set up as we debate, debate democracy and how it's actually working or not working. I don't know, I think we're somehow imagining like we're living in like some er golden era or like we're going to get back to a golden era but unless we know what the future is planned and has been since at least 1946 we're not going to be well positioned to be strategic about it because we're being managed at every corner we're being managed and so like until the constitutionalists start spending some time on web 3 and the smart contract layer i'm not really interested like until the whatever the voting suppression people like are doing this work i don't want to know because you're playing in the wrong game you're not in the right game, and we all have to get up to speed, so thanks. People ask what I was going to talk about in Tucson, and I said the ant computer. Because <laughs> I think that if we can get to this spot of understanding the organization of people and managed behavior as sociobiology instead of a political, a, a 
polarized political process, we'll be in a better spot. So what's coming next is actually an eight-minute video. It's from like 20 minutes, but I think it's really compelling to start to understand the management of complex systems and within a social context. So this is a programmer. They're using the programs of ants, simulated ants, to model path planning. And these path plannings, the efficiency, are used in AI, like a number of different applications. They're not real ants in these simulations, but they create pixels, which are agents that do the modeling. So they set up the conditions, and then they run the simulation. And I think if we were more attuned to how this all worked, then we could understand when we walk into a certain situation, how some of the options might be varied, you know, and how we might be managed in this. So uh, an idea, a vocabulary term that's important to understand is called stigmergy. And stigmergy is like, if you get like an ant infestation on your counter and you're trying to like wipe it down so that the ant, the trail of pheromones goes away, that's the stigmergy. It's, it, there is an essence that's left behind that influences the behavior of others, even if you've actually are no longer there. So these ant trails that are invisible, pheromones, that's stigmergy. And so one of the things that I think might sound a bit strange, but um, for, for people who came to Jason's talk last night, it was about money and exchange value. And I think what's going to be coming soon uh, is that they're going to be using tokens, both used in a voting context and in a financial transfer context, as uh, artificial pheromones to track exchange within social networks and then to potentially influence that. So anyway, with no further ado, I'm going to I'm going to roll this video, but when you see them talking about programming the ants, like picture yourself over the past couple of years if you've been in social media settings where you've seen things like conversations being managed either through cancel culture, trolling, algorithmic disappearing and and imagine how they may be programming our digital selves in in to get the behavior, the emergent behavior they're seeking. Ants. Essentially, how it goes is we place a virtual ant at one of these towns, which then needs to pick a new town to travel to that it hasn't visited yet. The ant would prefer some place nearby, so I'll calculate each town's desirability as one over the distance raised to some power. The higher that power is, the more strongly the ant will prefer the nearby towns. It'll make its final decision at random, but the probabilities are weighted based on that desirability value. So let's watch our adventurous little ant on his mission. Now that it has visited every town, we can retrace its steps to see the path that it took. It's not a fantastic path, but solving the entire problem is a lot to ask of one tiny ant, so let's give it some friends to help it explore. Once they've all finished their journeys, what we'll do is score each of their paths by how good they are, and these will act like pheromone trails, as the analogy goes, to help guide the next round of ants.
So ultimately, each ant chooses the next town in its path probabilistically based on the distance to the town and the strength of the pheromone trail there. In that way, each new group of ants explores random variations of the best paths found so far, and any improvements are reinforced thanks to the pheromones. Let's try run this new approach on those 20 towns from earlier to see if it actually works. I've slowed the simulation down so we can get an idea of how the pheromone trails change over time, and here it's already settled into a really good looking path. It took about 50 ants a split second to find this, which is a nice improvement from the six centuries we were facing before. Although, of course, the trade-off is we have no assurance that this is actually the best possible solution. Just for fun, and please try to contain your excitement, I'm going to ramp this up to 100 towns. Here again, I am showing a slowed-down view of the pheromone trails, but it's maybe interesting as well if I run it again, and instead display the best path the ants have found so far, so we can see how that develops over time as well. So I think this is a really cool algorithm. The only slightly annoying thing is there are a number of parameters for controlling the simulation, and it does take a bit of trial and error to find values that work well for a given problem. Anyway, this has got me interested in playing around with a less practical, but more sort of fun visual simulation of ants. So I started by making a simple flat ant graphic, and brought it to life a little with a crude walk animation. I then imported it into Unity, but something went terribly wrong in the process. And the result was mildly terrifying. I got it working in the end though, and wrote some code to make it follow this green dot around, which is going to represent the ant's food source. Here's the ant's code as it stands right now, and I want to modify this quickly to get the ant to wander about on its own. I'll try to achieve this by simply nudging the desired direction by some random vector each frame, and let's see how that looks. This ant is too indecisive and not making much progress in its life, but I can turn the wonder strength way down, and now it's exploring its surroundings quite nicely. I think the next step should be for the ant to be able to sense food if it's nearby and pick it up. So I've added some lines of code for handling that, and let's test this with just one ant to start with. That's working well, I think, so now I'll test this with a bunch of ants. The ants shouldn't just greedily keep all the food they find for themselves, though. They need to take it back home to support the colony. I really don't know much about ants, so I did a little research about how they even find their way home. It turns out they're smarter than I'd imagined. For example, beyond recognizing landmarks, which is pretty impressive, some desert-dwelling species are apparently able to combine directional information from polarized light with distance information from essentially an internal pedometer to calculate a straight path back home. I'd like to keep things simple though, and have all navigation done via pheromones. So inspired by this really cool video that I came across, I'm going to have the ants use two types of pheromones. This blue one, they'll lay down when leaving their home to search for food, and then if they actually find food, they should turn around and follow the blue pheromones home, while laying down these red pheromones to try recruit other ants to the food source. They're not doing a great job at the moment, but that's not their fault. I haven't actually implemented the pheromone following yet. So for that, I'm going to ask each ant to sample three regions in front of it. 
and based on the concentration of pheromones it detects in these regions, it will either turn left, keep moving forwards, or turn right, plus a little bit of random turning still on top of that. I think this is a nice simple way of handling it, which I actually came across in this paper which describes an approach to that problem we looked at at the start of the video, inspired by slime molds of all things. It's quite intriguing, so I might come back to it, but for now I'll just be borrowing this little sensory scheme for the ants. Here's the actual code for it, and as you can see down here, I've made the pheromones lose strength over time to sort of mimic the effect of evaporation. I'd really like the pheromones to also diffuse outwards over time, but I'm not quite sure how to handle that yet. Anyway, let's give this a quick trial run with a handful of ants. Okay, it seems to be working roughly how I intended, so next up I want the ants to be able to avoid obstacles, or at least not simply walk right through them. So I've spent a bit of time writing some dubious collision detection code, which does nevertheless seem to be getting the job done. I then wanted to generate some sort of map like one of these from this ancient tutorial series of mine. I have a strong aversion to my old code though, so instead of reusing that project like a reasonable person, I began re-implementing it all from scratch. After several hours' work, however, I came to the realization that my new code is not so great either. Fast forwarding through some frustration, I eventually did get it working, and I also added a brush that I could easily paint in obstacles or carve out little passageways. Come to think of it, I could have just taken two minutes to draw this in paint, but anyway, I ended up making this map for the ants, and I wrote a simple spawner script to scatter some clumps of food about the place. And so, with all this set up, let's unleash 500 ants from their nest and see what they get up to. the ants have collected that entire food cluster, but they'll keep returning there for a while still, until the pheromone trail has finally evaporated. Real ants are vastly more sophisticated than what I'm simulating here, of course, and in this situation, for example, I read that pharaoh ants have been found to actually deposit repellent pheromones when a resource has been depleted, to discourage future ants from that trail. This has been fun to play with, and there are many things I'd still like to try out, but my attention has been sidetracked somewhat by these strange and fascinating slime mold organisms. Slime mold is pretty interesting too. <laughs> so, I don't know if that makes sense to you in the context of the things I've been talking about today, but <laughs> I'm seeing some no. Um, okay, so we are agents. You're an agent, whether you understand it or not, in the simulation. If you have a digital footprint or you're using, even like not crypto, but digital money, credit cards, you have a digital footprint. You are an agent. There is a representation of you digitally in the space. We are social beings. We interact in society. Um, the way in which we interact is very interesting to the people who would like to manage us either 
for a variety of purposes, possibly to create a global superorganism, you know? And it's, and it's it's sort of a game and they can manage the variables. So instead of food sources, imagine that's information, uh, reputation, affection, you know, other things that you're, you're searching for with others. And that as you make a trail, others follow your trail and those get reinforced. But you know, in the, in the, the scheme that he was designing, he said, oh look, now I can create an opening or a barrier with my paintbrush. Now, I think what we are not aware of is that this world that we live in is already mixed reality to a certain extent. It's the real material world mixed in with an overlay of algorithmic stuff. Some of it is links to geofencing, which is why your phone knows where you are all the time. Some of it is related to people wear a smartwatch. Like it's in the very early stages of being a cyber-physical mixed reality environment. That's going to continue to ramp up more and more. Smart cars, right? Not even anonymous, uh, you know, uh, self-driving autonomous vehicles. But you've got sensor networks in everything. In in your your key card to go to work. All of those things are sensors, you know, QR code that you scan to get more information. All of those are Internet of Things devices that they want to model how you interact with those sensors and how others do and compare you against them to refine the game board to get to their ultimate outcome. And the people who have developed these technologies, they're largely backed by our tax dollars. It's our government. It's, this is military simulation. This is based on, like, on the one hand, you can say, yeah, we need gamified simulations because if we're going to go raid a compound, we want to try all the 10 different ways to do it and figure out what's the best one before we put a life on the line. Like, there is a certain logic in having gamified simulations, but now the plan is to run it on the whole world. And the reality is that people are not aware. People don't even know that this exists or what the intention are. And this is linked with very high level behavioral psychology. This is an extension out of MKUltra, right? This is the, 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 the US government, both the military and information services have invested copious amounts of research to figuring out consciousness and psychology, group and psychology, individual psychology, and they're building them into the simulations to manage us, not as progressives and conservatives, but as ants. And, and if we could imagine that situation, if we could try to inhabit that story for a while, I think that we could figure out that our neighbors who maybe hold different opinions aren't our biggest challenge. Our biggest challenge is the smart contract layer. <laughs> so um, this last image, um, you know, I'll just finish up. This is actually a fungus that colonizes carpenter ants in the Amazon. And what it does is it uses the body of the ant as an armature for its reproductive cycle. And at the end, it literally steers the consciousness of the ant to do its bidding. And this happens in a number of different kind of insect species. This isn't the only one, but they're zombie ants. And at the end, the ant is supposed to like grip onto a branch so that like as it dies, the spores of the thing come out. <laughs> And, you know, and, and these fungal things, these fungal networks are very much like neural networks. I mean, there's a lot of time and money spent into like researching slime mold. And, and the thing about the slime mold, which we didn't talk about, but is the elements of the slime mold are each individual cells that operate individually, but under stress, they clump together to turn into a slug to try to escape to a better environment. And then they make a stalk and the stalk the, the cells of that stalk to have a little spore thing at the top to create the next set of life, they all self-sacrifice. 
And that's, that's the narrative that we're going to be sold in the coming years, is that they want us to be their slime mold, and they want us to make the spores of these mind files. Um, and, and I think that we'll be less controllable if we are aware of the game that we're in. So I just want to go through some of the, the main concepts, just as a revisit, and then I have a closing slide. Um, and I know, these seem, when I started out in all of this, when I was fighting school closures and standardized tests, I never thought I was going to be talking about ant computers. <laughs> so I appreciate you bearing with me on this. So the first one is this idea that the digital technology space is looking to remake humans as social insects as opposed to individuals. And, and I think, again, not that I'm saying I lean in one particular political direction or another, but I think that the, the socialization and the, the mapping us as a collective is often framed as an economic or an ideological imperative, where I think the sociobiology is actually more useful and more accurate in terms of understanding the AI part. Uh, two, that this is an, a, a eugenics program, and it's part of guided evolution. So in that Google slide when they were talking about a goal-driven ledger, this is cybernetics. This is an optimization for an outcome of life individually and collectively that we haven't discussed and that someone has decided on what the direction is of that life. And they're putting you on a program to guide that evolution through gaming, through this idea of fitness landscapes, which is the game board with smart components and sensors, and genetic algorithms, which are these mathematical problems that are going to uh, lock or, or unlock different opportunities for you depending on what kinds of tokens you have in your wallet in that smart contract layer. Uh, they want us to work as teams, so this idea of the complex adaptive systems is really important. And I think increasingly the telepresence labor, both platform labor and the use of robotics, is that real people in the real world have a limit on the amount of relationships they can manage well, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know what number it is, but like there's probably, you could have about 100, 200 people that you see in your real life that you have some sort of meaningful connection to. This idea that in these social media spaces you have thousands of digital friends that you don't really know all over the world um, is something that suits this idea of global teaming and bringing together people from eclectic backgrounds to, to come together around certain issues and get data on inputs on different areas. And so I think it's not the global gig labor isn't just to suppress wages, which it does, or control people, which it will, but is also about team building. And one of the, the prime folks in artificial intelligence development, his name is Peter Stone, he's at the University of Texas, Austin, and he is the Sony AI chair and has been working for well over a decade on teaming through uh, robotic soccer. It's called RoboCup, which is probably appropriate in this World Cup area, but they've been working with people all over the world, but particularly in Japan, on humanoid robots to play soccer. And it's not because they, they think it's fun to have like a robot soccer team. It's that they're really trying to figure out how to get the robots to act like humans and to work together, not just individually as a lurching robot, but as a team, because the team is really important. Um, again, just touching on the complex adaptive systems and this idea when you get groups of people together, sometimes amazing things happen, right? I think these, these folks think that if you can give a wallet not only to people but to animals and machines and I'll put them together in a virtual room and see what happens. And I think there's this imagining that there's some sort of 
information or material or unlocking potential that they're going to have access to. So they're going to start to build these digital teams, like interspecies teams is really their goal. And there's some information on that by this guy named Ledgard at the Brookings Institute about interspecies currency, and a lot of it's going to be framed within the climate movement and also probably, you know, pandemic management. Uh, then we've got this idea of social impact. I've talked less about that. If you haven't seen my talk I gave last year about impact finance and making bets on human capital and nature of, again, predicting an outcome, guiding that outcome using data, and then paying back hedge funds depending on what the results are. That is all part of the cybernetic process. Um, like, I would definitely say if you're not familiar with biophysics or econophysics or social physics, those are all things like I never knew I needed to know about biophysics. Like I never really knew about that. Like it just seemed like something far off. But ultimately they are planning to manage biology through this molecular engineering and frequency and all this other stuff. So like once you know that the environmental movement and a lot of this biophysics came out of the Atomic Energy Commission, it, it seems a little bit different. It has a different lens. Um, Democracy is about the social interactions. They're looking to reboot it. <laughs> they're looking to replace votes with tokens. Uh, they're looking to make your money like a vote. They're, you, they're looking to have these various um, exchanges, whether they're financial exchanges or part citizen participation exchanges, the civil society sector is huge in this, to be like those stigmergic ant trails, right? And look, how can we put up barriers and open up opportunities on the game board to make the stigmergic ant trails go where we want them to go to, to try to get this global mind file? Um, and then they're gathering specimens. And, and, you know, I'm not saying, like, I'm not a nihilist. I'm not terrified by this. I think it's interesting. I say that a lot. Well, that's interesting. Like, let me think about that. What are the implications? The, there's lots of amazing kinds of people in this world <laughs> who have all different sorts of values, lived experience, everything. Like, I would say the vast majority of people in the world aren't out to hurt other people. They're just out living their lives in very different ways. And the AI loves that. They love to collect all these different kinds as digital twins. And they're in the process of doing that right now through the games. Um, and then, yeah, so this guy Bernal, he's attempting sort of this soul transfer in a digital ledger. And I'm gonna close with a short clip from uh, John Trudell, who was a, a leader in the American Indian movement, because I do just wanna reinforce this imperative of scientific process and civilization, and that we're on, you know, the edge of a long history, whether you wanna frame it as, you know, the, the manifest destiny of the United States, whether you want to take it back to the Roman Empire, there's this idea of domination, right, of, of controlling the chaotic individuals into some sort of coherent mechanism. And, and they're imagining that that next level of coherent mechanism is a, you know, global superorganism computational device that we're all going to be, like, logged in through, through frequency. But I think... The indigenous way of being, which Robin Wall Kimmer is a woman, I don't have a slide from her, but I've given a talk lately. She's an indigenous biologist in the SUNY Forestry School. And like there's, there's a different lens you use when you say, I'm the apex predator of this planet and I'm, I am the sole trustee of evolution. Like that's what Huxley, bring it on as much as possible, as fast as possible. That's one cosmology. Another one is we are all interconnected relatives like in this environment, like trying to figure out and balance out the system. And so, and I think like within Southern Arizona, that, that was a history through the Apache Wars that, that played out in writ large and has implications for our learning today. Like not again, 
casting judgment, but saying like, what are the lessons to take away? And I would say the, the molecular engineering scope versus a more, a scope where we're interconnected in ways that are perhaps more in the sacred than in the science um, is an important distinction to make. So I'm gonna, before I do John Trudell, I'm just gonna read a couple paragraphs from the Bernal book. Um, this is from chapter two called The World. First, then, in the material world, here prediction is on its surest ground, especially if you're engineering the game, and is, in the first stages, almost a business of mathematics. And I would say the smart contract layer is a world run on mathematics. The physical discoveries of the last 25 years, and this is 1929, okay, um, must find their application in the world of action, a process which has hardly begun, but the nature of which can be easily seen. So far, we have been living on the discoveries of the early and mid-19th century, a macro-mechanical age of power and metal. Essentially, it succeeded in substituting mechanism for some of the simpler mechanical movements of the human body, with steam and later electrical power in the place of muscle energy. And this was sufficient to revolutionize the whole of human life and to turn the balance definitely for man against the gross natural forces. But the discoveries of the 20th century, particularly the micro-mechanics of the quantum theory, which touch on the nature of matter itself, are far more fundamental and must in time produce far more important results. The first step will be in the development of new materials and new processes in which physics, chemistry, and mechanics will be inextricably fused. The stage should soon be reached when materials can be produced which are not merely modifications of what nature has given us in the way of stones, metals, wood, and fibers, but are made to specifications of a molecular architecture. Already we know all of the varieties of atoms and we are beginning to know the forces that bind them together, and soon we shall be doing this in a way to suit our own purposes. And so that's now, right? This is 1929, but now essentially we're looking at saving the planet by sampling everything, creating molecular models, biocomputation, bioinformatics, and then mixing and matching them. Like if you're not familiar with Ginkgo Bioworks, I mean, they're, they're looking to be the Amazon Web Services of synthetic biology. Like just make it in CAD, mix and match, print it out. <laughs> And, and what are the consequences, not just for ourselves, because you know I'm in my, my 50s and I don't know how much more time I have left, but for the generations behind us and the unborn and nature like that can't consent to, to being a part of this. Like no one asked a tree if they wanted to be part of the barcode of life, you know. Um, so anyway, we'll just run this last clip with Trudell. We've been imprinted and programmed, you know, I mean basically, where we're at now in the evolution of human beings, we're, we're basically in a period of time in this, in this industrial technologic world where the majority of the human beings participate in this reality based upon their fears and their doubts and insecurities. So their perception of their inabilities. And all that was imprinted in there to make us not recognize ourselves. And, and you know, and, and to understand the power and recognize the power of our intelligences, let's say, through our fears and our doubts and in our insecurities, how bad can we make ourselves feel? And how does that affect the people around us? Well, that's power. That's our power. That's a, a manifestation of our personal power. But we've been imprinted to use it in this kind of a way. But so we do have power. It's in how we recognize it and choose to direct it and use it. 
So I would say the first step to this is like recognize the value of our intelligence and the power of our intelligence. Because I think that any, any person or people that would be concerned about saving the earth and saving creation and have this type of an awareness. I, I think that it's, I think that a necessary component to that is to give thanks to their, however one perceives the creator, give thanks to the creator, number one, for life, and number two, for the gift of intelligence. To show respect for this, maybe because we need to show respect to our intelligence and maybe it's a part of our thanks that we give on a, on a, on a, on, on a daily basis, on a, almost in a ritualistic way. Because we, our intelligence to me, I mean, it's, it's like our imagination, our creativity, our thoughts, and then our understanding or misunderstanding and then our actions is what we manifest. And, and I think that it's time for us to understand, look at, recognize, and attempt to understand the value of our intelligence because whatever struggle is ahead of us, if we are to, to participate, continue to participate in the evolu evolutionary reality as human beings, it's gonna take clear and coherent use of our intelligence to do it. Generationally, collectively, individually, but it's, that's what, it's, what it is going to take. Everything that has ever been done to create these emotional distortions in us has been done to keep us from using our intelligence clearly and coherently. So just in, in closing, I just I want to express my gratitude um, for, for the invitation to be here today, for, to Drew for taking a chance on me last year <laughs> and being so generous in friendship and shared life experiences since then on this journey. And, you know, Fetzer, this guy, like these conscious, they know, like our, our sensory apparatus, like they're right. Bernal's right, like our sensor is like this much out of this much of what we, we come equipped with that we're using every day. There's all of this stuff out there and I think we do have access to do it. We don't need their nanotransducers for that. Like that's the place of faith and of imagination and of heart and of vibration and music and frequency that is from us, from the creator through us. And so, like, I think we're bigger than their nanomachines personally, but we actually have to be able to, like, I feel like that's the challenge is how do you see it and then find your place in it in a way, not of fear, not of anger, but of acknowledging, like tapping into the love of the world. And I know that sounds maybe corny, but people say, how do you get up and keep doing this knowing these big things, this feels really big. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, they've been trying it since 1929. They don't have it locked in yet. There's a lot of moving parts, right? And so maybe God puts us in a place to say, I see you and I stand on the side of the sacred and of nature and of the rightness of the world, you know, not of the machine. We're not doing that. and. Anyway, so in this, I make, um, I go places and I make little hearts out of natural material. And actually some people have sent me hand-sewn hearts and I lay, as someone who actually worked at Oak Ridge, which is amazing, there are these, and I, and I go to the places where these things happen. I'm gonna go to places around Tucson, I'm gonna go to places around Phoenix and I'm gonna say like, I see the story of this place. It's a complicated story. And we're gonna set an intention for that we come to a better resolution out of this. And so, and I have a friend, Eve, who I don't know if you've seen, our, my, I have a wonderful zine she made distilling my ramblings into some really coherent, lovely graphic comic book to explain this. And she's on the Space Coast. She literally is on Satellite Beach and she gathered me shells to bring here 
to the, these sparkling, beautiful shells to bring here, and I want to go out to Cochise Stronghold and make like an offering, like make an energetic connection across these things in the face of the machine, because I think that is the creative potential and the true social connection is what will enable us to um, find our way through, like to the labyrinth and neutralize it, find whatever homeopathy we need in there and then come back out. And we don't all need to do it. It doesn't need to be millions. Maybe it's just for the handful of people who have the eyes to see it and who are in a position in their lives that they can take the risk and that they have the strength and support to do the walk. So, um, to all the labyrinth walkers, thank you so much. Okay, hello everybody. Thank you guys for watching. Um, I am, Allison should be joining here in just a minute. Uh, I just texted her, um, so I don't know if she got sidetracked or whatever. But um, yeah, so it, again, if you have questions, I was kind of looking to see if there were any questions. I, I haven't seen any questions yet. But if there are questions um, that you would like to ask, um, feel free to put those into the chat and, um, I will, uh, make note of them and we will, uh, try to answer them. Um, so while I'm waiting for Allison, um, I thought I would bring something up. I, I, I get a little, <laughs> I get a little frustrated cause you know, there's something that's on the screen. I'm like, you guys, this is really important. We should, you really need to pay attention to this. And I look over at the chat and there's another conversation that, that's happening and, oh, hold on one second. Let me bring Allison in here. Uh, give her oh. some audio. Okay. Cut. There we go. Hey, Allison. Sorry. I was waiting for the Q and A. I'm sorry. Oh, no, we're, I, I'm doing the Q and A in like bits so we can chat oh. about it. Cause okay. I, I, right. I, that way we can kind of talk about it as, so yeah, we have, we have a few, uh, videos. We have six short videos from the Q and A where I cut the, the Allison's part out of it. So, um, Allison, I was just gonna, I was just making a quick comment about how, you know, I got a little frustrated at the, at the ant thing. I'm like, you guys, this is really important. You really need to pay attention to this. And there was a different conversation happening. And Cliff, I agree with you that, that it's, it's not unrelated. A lot of these other conversations are absolutely related, but like my frustration is I really feel like people are not getting the, the nature of this thing, you know, and I'm still working on it myself. I'm, I'm not sitting here saying that like, I have a full comprehension understanding of, of this whole thing. Um, but there are certain key th points that like, even the ant thing, I'm like, okay, it took me, it, it took me a minute. I'm like, okay, the ant thing, it's bouncing around, but you have to put it into a different context from even what the guy's talking about in the video. So, you know, and, and maybe some people are faster than me, you know, that's also possible, probable. Um, but I was, I wanted to bring up a book. There's a book called, um, by, uh, Nicholas, let's see, what, what is it? Uh, let me see. Oh, no, do I have a, I don't know. Let me just cut to it. <laughs> this is the book. It's called What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, The Shallows. And it's, yes, it's a New York Times bestseller, but <laughs> it's actually, there, it, there's actually some important points that are made by Nicholas Carr. And I, I would actually call this book a kind of a follow up to the book written by um, Neil Postman in the 80s call, called um, uh, <clears throat> Amusing Ourselves to Death, which was really about what television was doing to our brains, you know, versus like, you know, if you read a book, you have to really like, you have to read, like you can't be doing other things. You can't be having other conversations while you're reading a book. You have to like sit down and focus. And so 
Neil Postman in his book was talking about television and how that's changing us because we're getting all these distractions. So now we're getting like different messaging c coming at the same time. And our brains are like having to reorganize about that. And then of course the internet just explodes that thing where you can have like 50 different things going on at once. You have advertisements, you have like different conversations that are happening at the same time. And like, and, and this is just me, something that I'm trying to do right now is actually, you know, cause I've always been, I've loved like listening to lectures and I love listening to audio books and then I can do other stuff while I'm listening to this. And, and, and to really understand this stuff, I think at least for me, I'm like, I need to actually really like pipe, sit down and really, really focus. So I'm, I'm doing a lot more reading lately. I mean, I've always been a reader, but you know, reading is usually been for me secondary to like listening to audio books and things like that. And so now I'm like going back to like, okay, I need to really, really focus and pay attention. So that was what that was about. Not to belabor the point, but um, I think it would be, you know, we, I think we should think about how our conversations, whether our conversations are, con are actually competing or contributing to um, what's happening and, and really realizing that maybe some people have the ability to have like two conversations at the same time or, or three conversations, even if they're related, you know, and I'm not saying that they're unrelated. So, okay, I'll, I'm going to get off my soapbox now. I'm just, I said, said my <laughs> thing. I love you guys though. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. Allison. I mean, I'm just curious because, um, like, you can see the chat now, and I and I can't. But like, I don't know how it is all set up. Oh but, yeah, um, you could bring up another people, window. Um, I know. I'm not. I, I was anyway. Just you have, you have like, two monitors, <laughs> Allison. <laughs> you know what? Sorry. I, I was no, unprepared. I didn't have it all set, so I'm sorry. That's all right. Um, I'll like, keep an eye if there's anything that pops up that's that's yeah, a question like, or anything. I mean, does it make sense for people? Like, I'm just sort of opening it up to the people who are there this idea of the simulation modeling, because I think a lot of the conversations around the metaverse are focused on this idea of inhabiting a metaverse or maybe control systems within a metaverse. Um, but I, I'm not sure how much discussion there is around the simulation piece, right? Like the there was a there was a clip that I posted, I think yesterday that was from and I would encourage people if you have time. Um, Jason put on my radar, uh, th this company cesium that's actually based here in Philadelphia, I, I don't know, I don't remember who found it first, but they have a podcast called the open metaverse. And I've mentioned this before that the, the metaverse needs to be done on open standards because you can't build an entire virtual world if it's all unique and you have to pay people to do it. So they need these standards for it to happen in an open source sort of way. And so Cesium actually has this podcast and there's way more content. I think I found it or you directed me to it about a year ago. And I just Again, as with these things with the feed, if you don't have a bookmark to say, go back and look at what Cesium is doing with their podcast, you forget. And then it's a year later and then they have 20 episodes with all of these very high level players who are building out the infrastructure of the metaverse. And the, the, the metaverse meaning extended reality or mixed reality or inhabiting these socio-technical cyber-physical systems, right? Because it's not just a game in a VR headset, it's everything, right? And so, you know, I was catching up on some of their interviews, again, with very high level people. I'm, I think the one it's co-hosted by someone at Cesium and someone with Epic Games. And they were literally debriefing from a program they, they had run in the fall uh, at something called SIGGRAPH 
about an NVIDIA presentation. Now, NVIDIA, we went to one of the NVIDIA offices in Boulder when we did th that round of field visits. And it, for people who are not familiar, they're very high level um, computer processing cards often used for computer graphics, but not exclusively, but like very high end processing power computerized systems. And it's, it's to enable like running the metaverse, right? And so, um, NVIDIA was presenting and they were they were debriefing about the presentation and they said, you know, we're excited because they're talking about digital twins and about using very high power processing to run simulations and to make predictions about the future. And soon th this idea that they would be able to match past behavior, which would be your blockchain twin to these alternative future predictions and then manipulate them, which is essentially something that I've been talking about for a bit, but to have these high level people say that that's the plan. And actually the guy from Epic Games is like, yeah, it's kind of like a time bending thing. Like when you match the past information data to possible futures, like time starts to get weird and murky. And this is stuff that, you know, I, I was out in, in Utah over, the holiday and reading this book by about it's a biography of Hugh Everett the third and he developed this many worlds theory and then and then everyone brushed him off and said well we don't really that's too complicated whatever and then he went on to become a very very prominent um analyst in game theory in the cold war so he was like he kind of walked away from his dissertation on multiverses and then moved into this game theory um which is all the stuff that's these prediction markets right and these bonding curves and the tokens so um anyway i guess like i'm just expanding on this and i'm wondering do people like in the chat do they see the role of the simulation modeling like and how is there a way to surface that more in the conversation and then to understand if this is sort of like a, a drama that's all being played out on a stage you know like all of the the over-the-top characters in the social media sphere and the influencers and the topics that are you know jerk our attention around in all these directions that once we understand that's part of the simulation analysis then like you can position yourself differently in relation to it right like you know i I just told my husband like over the, the the break, I said, I'm not playing the culture war stuff anymore. I'm just not, I've decided like I, once it's like as hard as it is to be off of the main social media channels, like once I saw it for what it was, like I had been hedging it for a while. Like you and I both knew that it wasn't good, but we were like, but you know, the benefits outweigh, you know, the negatives or whatever. But then like once it really sinks into your bones about the ant computer and the stuff, like, you know, it's not going to work. Like it's not our tool. I mean, I mean, for me, I can't say that for everyone else. I'm not trying to project that on or, or shame anybody or wag my finger and say you shouldn't be on social media like that. It's not that. But like for me, once I hit that wall of like really internalizing the, the level of manipulation and its historical origins in mind control and propaganda technology and research like you then you have to stop and then you have to figure out the next thing which i haven't still haven't figured out the next thing but um anyway like that's why i wanted to talk about the ant computer and tucson you know i cliff and i we've been having these conversations about the labyrinth look around the labyrinth and and Roma and 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 there's somebody from Mexico and a friend from Utah, like and another two friends from Utah actually have sent me letters 
right? Talking about where they are and their geography. And that, that's been wonderful. So, um, yeah, anyway, that's, that's, those are sort of my observations. And then I, I have some other stuff we, we sort of bounced around that we could build off of the ant computer, but I don't know if people have any feedback yet or. Jason, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Sorry, I got <laughs> muted. I need to remember. I even have a nice little button that I can push, like a physical yeah. button. <laughs> you just and, and so I, I tried to make it easier on myself, and I'm still still screwing up. Um, but uh, yeah, so we do have a couple questions, and so if yeah, I, we love the questions. Please, more questions, related related questions. <laughs> um, so the first one was, uh, so we are so we are figuring out where this thing is going, any ideas of where we go? What to, what do, what do we do with this knowledge apart from sharing? We get this question a lot. <laughs> uh, Allison, do you want to, do you want to answer that? I mean, I, I think, you know, it, it's interesting. You like there needs to be sort of like maybe a stages like some sort of stages outlined in like processing like truth stuff. <laughs> you, know, you have stages of grief, like the me that was the first six months of the lockdowns. Like, I feel like I'm, I've shifted my perspective considerably over the, the, the trajectory of this. Right. <clears throat> and I think I'm trying to mellow out a little bit more and, um, be not so anxious because at the first I was like, oh my gosh, there's this thing and I and I have to get this information out because there's this timely thing that if we had this information at this certain point in time, it could make the difference and people would, and then I realized, oh, that's not gonna happen. Like I held on to that for like a year, a year and a half and I'm like, oh no, it's really not gonna happen. <clears throat> and then I really started to understand this, <coughs> the ant computer and the stigmergy and the pheromones and I'm like, oh no, no, that's actually not gonna happen. Like. So I needed a new picture and my picture was like, okay, my frame, the story I'm in, <coughs> sorry for coughing, um, is not that we're part of a battalion and we're marshalling all the forces, forces on the edge of the cliff to get ready to run off into the battlefield with the millions of people who are all united under some like umbrella thought that's been watered down so much that it's something that we can all agree to is that like, um, I don't know, it's more, not, I'm not saying I'm a hero, but like a hero's journey, like maybe this is a lonely walk or a walk with the, the fellowship of the ring or something like, like there's a small band of us who are trying to carry forward with a, um, a curious mind and trying to do the right thing in a very seemingly immoral time as a spiritual engagement to, to walk this labyrinth, right? To, to see where it goes and um, see how the story unfolds before us because we don't know how how it, I mean, well, I don't know, Cliff always says it ends and we all have the potluck in, in the valley of life and we, everybody's fragmented consciousness gets put back together. And that's awesome. So until then, like I'm on a nihilist, I'm walking towards that and we'll see. Like um, we had a conversation today uh, where Cliff was saying something like when you walk forward and you're, you're situated in the right way, like your energy and your focus and your intention is in alignment with the universe, like 
the doors open or the lights go on. Like you walk a dark hallway and it seems dark, but as you walk up to it, then the door opens or the light turns on and you can go the next distance. And I sort of feel like that's a really beautiful image to hold in your head that like you don't have to know exactly where the thing is if you can um, get out of the anxiety space. And I'm not trying to be dismissive. Yeah, it's really hard and really, and, and I'm in a pretty privileged position to be able to do this work the way I'm doing it and still have the material comforts and my needs met, you know? So, and that's something a lot of people do. So I'm not saying everybody has to do what I do, but if we can get in this space and walk, then the, the road rises to you, I think. So um, I tell stories and I set these intentions and I try to make, I do feel like that there's an energetics the more I look into the physics of it. And I'm not saying I'm any high level physics. I mean, you know, D Drew Hempel does all this amazing work in the physics space and that's his superpower is physics and meditation. And it's not mine. And I, I really respect what he offers. Um, but I have like a different toolbox. So I know it's about physics. I know it's about spirit. And I feel like intervening can make a difference. I, I don't feel like this is going to be legislated away. I don't, once you understand it's ruled from space by drones and satellite surveillance, and you know, they've got satellites up there that can zoom down and look at what kind of shoes you have on, like you're not going to run from it. So let's not run. Let's have the courage of our convictions to stand and witness to it and and say, no, I, you know, like be the mom, like, you know, go sit on the timeout step for a couple minutes. Like, I think you need to, your head isn't on straight. You know, <laughs> I like that analogy. Um, yeah, for me, it's 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 is recognizing it is a process and there are certain things that need to happen uh, before the next thing happens. And, and to me, it's within, first of all, within me, I need to really understand this thing. You know, it's not just like, I'm always saying this, like you can't come up with a solution to a problem you don't understand. And I don't fully understand this thing. I'm still in the process of learning what this thing is. And, and most of the people that I know that ask me, Hey, what's the solution? They won't even watch a three hour talk that I send them. I like, care. Well, here, learn about this thing. They're like, I'm not going to watch a give me the five minute version and then give me the answer. I, I'm sorry. That just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Um, I, I don't know what the answer is. I do know that part of that is being conscious about the information that we, and who we listen to. I, I know like Cliff likes to say, what are you listening to? And I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. You know, what are we listening to? And I know so many people are, whether they're listening to mainstream media, you know, I got into a kind of a, a, a little, Thing with a friend today that was referring to, you know, someone who was promoting mainstream media and basically saying, you know, anything on YouTube is ridiculous because it's on YouTube. I mean, it's just stupid. But, um, but again, people are giving their uh, their energy, they're outsourcing their thinking to different, you know, outlets, and or it could be a, a, a an alternative media, or it could be Allison McDowell and J or Jason Bosch. Like, don't outsource your thinking to anybody at all. Like, listen. Take it in, think about it, see if it makes sense, add to it or walk away from it. Like literally just walk away from it. Like if it's not something that makes sense to you, walk away from it. But so much of we're, we're the, we're the most propagandized people, I would argue in recorded human history. And so we're being inundated. I mean, it's, it's even embedded in our media, like our pop entertainment, 
you know, movies that you go see. It's just an entertaining popcorn movie. No, there are, there's messaging in that. And so it's, it's all over the place. And so it's really hard to step outside of, of, of that. And, and I think that that's, for me, that's part of the process of saying, you know what, I'm actually not going to listen to it. Or if I'm going to listen to it, I'm going to listen to it with an understanding of who it is that's giving me this message and what their agenda and goal is, you know? Um, so anyway, so that's, that's kind of my thing on that, on well, that. Can right. I add just one other yeah, yeah. thing? So like, I don't know, I saw somebody like there was popped up a critique of me, like, oh, she's one of those people who says it's, there's not somebody in charge who's doing this to us, you know? And that was, that was the critique. And I'm like, because I feel like this is an emergent system that goes way back and that most people, I mean, yeah, I'm, th there's degrees and some people certainly know more about what the, where the road is going than others, but there's many people who just get up and do their daily lives and whatever. And so I feel like, um, like within the propaganda frame, I did a read aloud of Werner Vinge's Rainbow's End, like, a, a, I don't know, at some point in the past year, a bit, a while back. And in this new future world of mixed reality, everyone participates in their own curated world. So they wear technology and they have an overlay that is aligned with their belief circle, right? Like whether it's anime or, you know, D&D &D or well, like, I don't know all the things, but like you would be part of a global belief circle and the lens that you would have on the world um, through your wearable technology would represent that curated worldview, right? And, and, it, and that's sort of an extreme measure, but I think, I think the, the, I think it might be useful to try on this idea of instead of framing it as propaganda, as curated reality. Like, what is the story? Like, not that there's the good story and the bad story, but that there is everyone is starting with this fire hose of information to have a story that they live in. And then the people, they have a group of people around them who also live in that story. And the media they consume reinforces that story. And there are many different kinds, which kind of feeds into what I was saying about the ant computer. Like they don't mind having some resistance as long as it's trackable. Like they like lots of flavors of lots of different stories. And John Clippinger, who is a key figure in this with Sandy Pentland at MIT Media Lab in like social computing and social physics, and one of the early leaders in digital identity, um, you know, I'm fascinated. I would love to get my hands on a copy. Like his Wikipedia entry says that his undergraduate thesis at Yale was like something called the Steersman and the Stars, Cybernetics and Mythology. And then one of the talks I was listening to recently, and I've listened to like three, so I can't remember which one, if it was Philip Rosedale or the um, Cesium people or the IEEE people, but someone was saying, we need a new mythology to guide us into the metaverse that there is a mythology. And so I think propaganda has its own sort of baggage that comes along with what we understand propaganda is in its history. And I'm not saying it's not that at all, but if we shifted to say, wow, this new metaverse we're living in, it's all about story. The people who are building it are like, yeah, we wanna build a bunch of AI characters that are almost autonomous. So creators can build any story they want and you can go live in it. And I think that's a different, like that's the part of the simulation and the ant computer is like, you know, and, and Cliff even talks about it sometimes, like, you know, a, a disgruntled person, like building a world um, in flying in the face of, you know, 
the, the parent's creation and falling asleep inside it and forgetting he created it and he's actually a part of it, right? Like like losing yourself in a story that you made and then, for, and then being lost to the point that you can't remember how to get out or that you even built it in the first place. And I, to me, that feels really important right now about this mixed reality, extended reality slash simulation, optimization agent and computer conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so a couple other questions. I'll just do two here at once. Um, I don't know if I can do two. <laughs> well, no, they're, they're easy questions. They're, they're, yeah. They're, um, are you guys considering putting Allison's content into a printed format, even if it's all of her essays? I'd sleep better knowing that all her work has been archived. Uh, so yeah, we have the video archives and Allison knows I've been for actually <laughs> since almost the beginning, I've been like trying to like, we need to, we need to put this into a book form. And you know, honestly, like it, it, to, to do that, I mean, we could actually just take transcripts of the talks and just it, or organize them in a way. So like if somebody wanted to do that, like go for it, you know, <laughs> just don't misrepresent it. It's not done yet. It's, I mean, and I so, yeah, yeah, we're still in the, yeah. Challenge. Like every month or two, there's, and again, the, the stuff I find isn't so much upending how I saw things. Although again, I'm trying to be, you know, with, with Cliff's guidance and some of this like more um, balanced about how I look at it, right? Um, it's, it's evolving and getting clearer. So, like this was the end of November, early December piece. And, um, you know, I saw Sebs was in the chat and she has done some really good work around complex adaptive systems, which is much appreciated. And like how the hypergraph stuff, and the directed acyclic graphs and, and that intersection fits in with things. So so it's great to have, you know, I, I'm not the only one working on this. And then also with the Santa Fe Institute, I recently connected with a couple of other content creators, Emily Moyer and Danny Katz, who are interested in Santa Fe Institute. So I'm going to try to connect with them and share what I know about my angle into this game B token economics complexity thing. Um, so there, there, there are bubbling up other, other people. So that's where I was a month ago. Um, but Danny recently put on my radar, um, that, that well that we overlapped with the consilience project this schmachtenberger and game b and jim rutt that was sort of the overlap and um she said oh this person jamie whelan is promoting ethical cults and he's part of this consilience project with with schmachtenberger and he has this book called stealing fire and so i i ended up getting like I, i've been working on i've i packed off a, a a quilt that I've been meaning to get to Jason for a year. And so I had a bunch of handwork I was doing the last three days. So I'm listening to this audiobook of Stealing Fire with Jamie Whelan. And it's he's part of something called Flow Genomics, I believe. And what I'm realizing, this book is all about not just the teaming and not just the Hollands and but to get a team into a certain mental state where you're flowing together. And that's that's a key part of what what he's developed with the Navy SEALs. Like the whole first chapter was about the the Greek aspect of sort of um, ecstatic, like the ecstatic through altered states of consciousness, and then the Navy SEALs working as a team for these these projects. And so I'm like thinking about the the teaming and the collective mind and the tokens understanding it as a state of flow and using altered consciousness to get there, but not just through 
mind altering substances, but also mind altering practice. And I think we, we, I had done some research that I haven't had a chance to talk about yet. Um, but looking at the intersection of, um, intentional community, right? Co-working spaces, co-living spaces, the idea of where that overlaps with social impact, uh, this guy, and I'm trying to remember his name, but he was a, a very, uh, high level mathematician. He was Jewish. He grew up in Brooklyn. He went to California. He became a Zen Buddhist mathematician. And then he moved to the Bronx to make brownies for Whole Foods and, and pulled in um, unemployed men who had been in prison and then built up this whole social impact B Corps thing. But he was working with Trappist monks and they were all about contemplative practice. And, and then they were looped in with people out in Taos and consciousness. So like when I'm, I'm looking at the next phase of the ant computer, it really does blend in with the built environment, cognitive capitalism, the creative economy, um, and, and a, a shared collective, um, but in these different states that again, carries it with it both the military programming and the religious programming and potentially the neurohacking, nootropic, psychedelic component, which brings in like a whole bunch of, a whole slew of people, influencers that they've been looking into. So, um, yeah, so that's that's what I'm thinking. Like there's this whole, this next level. So if you stop to write the book, then like, where do you call it done? And and I, I maybe I just should for posterity, just say it's done, you know, like I'm done for this and maybe I'll keep going. But the thing that jazzes me is like the chase, you know, that like the next thing. Um, and, and even, you know, I, I wrote an 80 page post um, starting last December or January. And it, the whole beginning of it was like, I'm working on this quote from my friend, Jason. <laughs> that was the whole introduction. And then I sat on it for a year. Like I literally, like I just had stuff kind of fall apart in my, you know, personal that I couldn't get back to it. Like I just couldn't. And then now was the time. So I finished it. So like now I can go back and surface this, but it involved the foundation for integrated education, which is something that uh, Fritz Kunst and Julian Stolman and Drew Hempel has worked on that. And I'm looking over, I'm revisiting that and seeing a year later and it's all relevant, but I see it with fresh eyes. Like I see it with all of this new information. This, things have much more context for me now than they did a year ago. You know, when I told uh, Lynn that I would love to do some more conversations with her around that huge map I did around the Pegasus Park in Dallas, but I know so much more now than I did when I made the map because I only knew, you know, the top inch of the material. And now maybe I know two inches worth and it's very different. Like it's a variations on a theme. It's the same stuff. So I don't know, like, it's not a bad idea. Um, it, it, does somebody else want to write the book? <laughs> you know, I don't need to make any money or get any credit. Like just if there's like, if there's people who they feel their calling is to like write a book about this stuff. Like, I would love to see what other people think about some of this stuff we've been digging up. Yeah. Um, That's not yeah, a dodge. I, just, I'm just not there yet. 
and it's kind of the same thing with me, uh, with the, the, you know, I was trying to make the summary video and I'm actually behind Allison, like Allison's like ahead of me and I'm chasing behind her, you know, catching up with the, the research you, you, in the past, I was actually the, I, I was the Allison before, you know, when I was like talking about the monetary system and, you know, challenging people on their understandings of the political parties and, and then the nonprofits and NGOs, you know, I was, I was always the one that was the head of the curve, uh, at least within the, my community. And then all of a sudden, you know, like Alice is like, Meow, and I'm like, Oh wait. <laughs> so I'm like trying to catch up with Allison and then, but try, and then also trying to condense it. But like, I'm, I'm also like y you learning more uh, all, uh, every day. And then, you know, kind of re reorient, reorient, reorienting myself. So yeah, that's it. But I did want to share, I, I, Allison sent me a picture of this quilt. I got to share it. Like I've never been so excited to get a quilt. Like I never in my life would be like, Ooh, a quilt, but this thing is freaking amazing. Well, I kind of, I kind of told her, I was like, I like chaos, like patterns, you know, like fractal chaos type patterns. And I told well, her kind of, the I, said, I was like, what colors do you like, Jason? <laughs> I'm like, and what was your answer? What did you say? Well, I was like, I really like oranges and I, I, I really, <laughs> Like, oh, you're right. Black. Black. I, I always wear black. I was like, I don't know. I just like black. Because, uh, oh, like, when you make a quilt, you spend a lot of time with it. And, and not that those are bad, like, but this particular one needed a lot of different, like, colors. So I, I mixed in purple and blue and gray and stuff. So it's, yeah, it is orange and black, but plus some other stuff. Yeah. So this is, this is the quote quilt she, she made, like, handmade, which is, to me, just like, anyway, I love it. <laughs> I can't wait. I used a sewing machine, so. Oh, yeah. yeah oh, yeah. You didn't hand, hand. Yeah. My, well, my... I, I, I only hand sewed the binding, but like, yeah, it's a lot of cutting. So, yeah. So I used to have like on my Twitter handle, like quilting as things play out. Um, and people are like, do you really quilt? And I'm like, well, I did. And then I stopped for a year, but I'm going back. And now I'm committed. I bought, I bought fabric for a quilt for Cliff. So that Cliff is next up. So oh, I, cool. I'm working on clues. And we're going to, we're going to create NFTs out of these quilts. So if anybody's interested, uh, we're going to be selling shares. <laughs> Kidding. I mean, oh, is there another question? I just wanted to no, no, go like, for it. No, oh, oh. Well, I was just saying like the creative economy. So I've been listening to, I'm realizing that um, Second Life, which was uh, Philip Rosedale was the person who, with the founder, right? But like, as all of these people are founders, right? But he 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 went to uh, University of California, San Diego, which is you know a center of you know uh, you know the nanotechnology and the biotech and the salk and the navy high end. Like, there's a lot of stuff in San Diego, so it's interesting that that's where he came out of. So the Second Life construct started in 2003, and uh, I found a talk online that was in 2006, the early years of second life. And I was always kind of annoyed. Like I, I didn't have an account. I always heard the ads on NPR. They were all pitching second life all the time. Um, I did come across a MacArthur foundation video once that had like, like goofy cartoon people sitting in like a conference center. And I was like, what the hell is this? Is it like talking about, they had the like MacArthur Island of philanthropy or something. And they were sitting there like having their conference when they're like avatars. I'm like, what? Because, and it was so much more primitive, you know, 20 years ago. And, um, and I didn't make much of it, but he went on to move into spatial audio, which is interesting, something called high fidelity, uh, because uh, JCR Licklider, uh, the, you know, early with DARPA, he was a, a psychoacoustics was really key. And, um, and then he went on to something was like some sort of coffee thing, like, like 
meeting up for gig work. And now he's back at Second Life again. But when he was talking about like they were really early in having a digital economy and the, the idea, which I didn't understand at first because I didn't inhabit that space, was they started with a pretty blank slate and they didn't build any of their content in Second Life, really. It was all done by the people who had accounts that went in and created things in there. And not unlike, it turns out, like Burning Man, I think this emergence potential, like you start with a clean slate and people come in with their creative ideas and collectively they build things and there are things that are pre-planned. And then there's also this emergent behavior by having lots of creative, interesting people all in one place, right? And, and that's very interesting to this simulation emergence modeling. And that's what Second Life was. And so they were an early digital economy. All the people, they built stuff and they made digital things and they sold them for these things like Linden dollars as their currency. And they sold, they rented real estate. And, and so I'm, I'm holding that, uh, this new understanding of Second Life as a creative economy and understanding where the emergence of AI enabled art and film and storytelling is going like in building out the metaverse. And then I'm also listening to one of these cesium podcasts. Um, it actually was with Neil Stevenson of the snow crash guy. And he was talking about the importance in his lamina one, his new blockchain based digital asset company that they were focusing on like the creation of digital goods, non-speculative. This is what they were saying, it, that the problem with NFTs was that they were speculative and they want just more like a regular use case transactionality for creative goods in the metaverse. And so it's just hitting me that this thing, like I, I've, I've spoken about it broadly, like, yeah, they need us to build it. Like this isn't an empire where you go sail your ship to the shore and then, you know, you, you tell the natives to convert to Christianity or else or whatever, and then take all their stuff. It's not that kind of empire. It actually has to emerge from these bits. You know, the bits that are out there have to be organized and made into something. And they're not going to pay anybody as like they're, they're, they really don't want to pay anybody a salary to do it. They want to create some sort of in tokenized incentive programs to get us to agree to use our creativity to mine our creativity into that digital logic space yeah and also in terms of understanding this like we always want to like pin it down and be like oh it's this oh no it's this and and there's a lot of there's a lot of pieces to this thing you know there's there's yes the, you know the people like oh so, you know cbdc government you know the you know the, the socialism or whatever and then and then over here it's like oh it's 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 rampant capitalism you know with with coins that are speculated on it but it's like all those things but more importantly yeah. you know understanding that it's cybernetic and it, it it'll incorporate yeah. all these different things into it you know and the so cybernetic like key. huh yeah the cybernetic cyber aspect is really central and right. you know i would say th there's some good resources online on the macy conferences on norbert wiener and um you know that's something you know, we, we did that long talk with about Musk and spin and, you know, all of the, you know, um, yeah, I want to get back to, to some of the Macy conferences and cybernetics. Um, but the, the thing too, cause I know we had some comments in the chat about the hard space and intention, you know, it's very interesting because one of Norbert Wiener and he was sort of the father of cybernetics, um, his close collaborator over many years was Arturo Rosenbluth, who was a, um, 
I think Hungarian Jewish Mexican scientist who was at the Macy conferences and, but he, and he, he ended up being based in Mexico because he couldn't get an academic position as a Jew in the US. And so, but in having that situation in Mexico that channeled lots of philanthropic money into Mexico, but he was a cardiologist specifically. So like, I feel like there is something about the resonance of the heart frequency in this, you know, I don't know, quantum computing system or whatever that, that matters and, and their, their attempts to program it, right. The, uh, was it control and communication and animal and the machine, something like that. Um, so another question is, uh, and we actually have whole videos <laughs> about this. Uh, what is Elon Allison's take on Elon Musk? On the one hand, he seems like he's just a businessman. On the other hand, he placed himself at the center of these propaganda Twitter wars. Why? And I, my take on that, I know it was a question for Allison, but, um, you know, I think we're pretty in alignment, but, uh, is that that's not that's not where the focus should be. <laughs> I think the point is that's controlled narrative. That's, that's the, 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 the red herring and they, you know, they, these entanglements, these online entanglements. Um, so, but Allison, do you want, do you want to just say a couple words about that? We do have a, a great video about Elon Musk and, and spin AI spin and Twitter. That's definitely worth watching on Allison's channel. So I would, uh, look for that one. Cause it's, it, it does kind of talk a little bit about that. It's, it's from like six or seven months ago, but it's still very, very relevant. Well, all this stuff is <laughs> relevant. Yeah. Um, well, I, it's like these magnetic personalities. And I think, um, you know, uh, and real quick, you say magnetic and magnets have one side repels and right. one side attracts. So, yeah. you know, think about that. Or we know when you when people think about someone like Trump or, you know what I mean? So go ahead. Yeah. Well, so there, there was a book I read over the summer and I think the name is like fool fouls, foolish F O W L E S called the magus and Roll had recommended it a while back. And it was a really interesting book because it was essentially, it's, it's fiction, but this idea of like a young man looking for adventure and he becomes a teacher on this remote Greek island and he becomes entangled in, in weekend visits to this estate of this very unusual older man who essentially puts on um, masks like M-A-S-Q-U-E-S, like the mask balls, um, performances. Masquerade. That, yeah, um, that are that start to blur the difference between reality and drama. And then you start to not be sure what's real and what's not real. And it sort of progresses into some sort of like layers of psychological manipulation, but that's also embedded in Greek mythology. And it was, it was quite an interesting book. And I think what I didn't realize at the time, but it was based on the Tempest, this idea of Prospero and sorcery and shipwrecks and, you know, I feel like this social media is that, like it is like living in or holding space in one of these um, unfolding dramas that has a certain scriptedness, but not all of it scripted. Like there's some ad lib stuff in there. And this idea of reality as being malleable, <laughs> like, and I think in the extended reality, things do become malleable and uncertain. And, you know, and I've gone through a number of things online where, you know, I've had encounters, and I, I think I said in the talk that things became illogical, like people I thought I knew, be things didn't, 
they, they became, yeah, unexpected and in, in unaccountable ways that I think in real life wouldn't have happened, like in face to face wouldn't have happened. And so, and you don't know how these things are being controlled or represented or misrepresented. And so I feel like the Musk's question is he is like an actor on a stage. He, he, he's not Twitter. He's not what, like, he's probably, you know, we've had these conversations that he is a character that's been put in front of certain companies, certain interest groups to, to carry forward the narrative and, and to and allow the simulation hap to, to happen and to be modeled out. And so if you don't understand that these systems, you know, really are largely embedded in the thought process of MIT and MIT Media Lab, right? Like people shouldn't be paying attention to Elon Musk. They should be looking very closely at the history of the project work of MIT Media Lab, what they've been involved with, with corporations, including Lego being a major funder. And when I finally put out the, the paper that I wrote last year, um, there'll, there'll be a major feature of that. But understanding the AI, the digital currency, the social physics, and how that has come to to pass in what we understand as social media today. And so if something becomes a big story in social media, I don't think any of that is organic. It is all orchestrated and is all tagged with some sort of hash so that it can be managed for later. And so that's my feeling about that. Like when people send me things, I'm like, you know, I'm just going to suggest that if it's viral, it's viral for a reason. So maybe the new game should be, why is this viral? <laughs> and not, what do you think? Or who is this? Like it should, you, the default, if something is viral should be like, this is advancing the narrative of the simulation. Is it polarizing? Who is it polarizing and to what end? Yeah. And on that, I, I'll, I'm going to kind of make a pitch for, uh, if you're a real human being, and you're not, you know, like, and you're a sincere human being and you're, maybe you don't understand all this, or maybe you do, do understand it. Um, you know, I always encourage people like, don't be a passive consumer of information. Like find, you know, do more, like Allison's always trying to get people in your own places where you live, like look and look around where you live, whether it's in legislation or what companies or what's happening at the university down the street, because this isn't some like thing out there in China or whatever. It's, 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 it's it's all over the place. You can find it everywhere when you when you start to actually look at it. So start to engage in this. And as far as like, you know, we talk about like, yeah, if stuff goes viral, there's a reason why it's going viral. It's being allowed, intentionally being allowed to go viral, or actually um, being made to go viral. And and on the flip side of this, I'm I'm pretty confident that we are being made to not go viral. <laughs> you know, because we have so many people like I share this everywhere. And I, I know part of that is a lot of this is dense and it's really hard for people. I mean, I know I have a difficult time with people that I know when I share this with them and not wanting. But I mean, in the whole world, we're still, you know, we're we're maxing out at like maybe 15, 700, 1700 views. And of those, how many of those are actual real people? And of those people that are actually real people, how many of them are actually real people that are really interested in actually trying to learn about this material? So if you are one of those real people actually interested in this and trying to learn about it, um, you know, just don't be passive, like learn more like outside of us and share it and really understand it. And, you know, well, do some like take up a little corner. Like I just had someone like um, say that they were interested in slime mold. Right. Like and, and I'm like, awesome, because I think slime mold is a fascinating part of this puzzle. So like if you if there's something about the stuff that we talk about that's interesting to you, like go 
fill out that part of the picture, right? Like bring that into focus a little bit more. And we can, you know, I offer my space as a guest post on the blog. Like I would love for it to be, um, become more of a, a co collaborative platform. And like I said, you know, I've gotten, you know, a half dozen people who've, who've made contributions, you know, in the, in the past year. And, and I'm grateful for that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. It's fun. Uh, like once you start to, like, I think it's a different level. Like once you step in and actually do it for yourself, like to me, and maybe I'm just a real geek and my brain works in a weird way, but like, I kind of find it fascinating to pick an event or something and look at the panelists and then look at all their LinkedIn's right. And then look at their trajectory. Like, where did they start out and where did they go? Like, what is their light? And then you look at you, maybe you look at half a dozen people who are on a panel at an event and then, then pause and say, what story does that tell? Like, what story can I parse out of these people's life histories of how they represent themselves in their, not that this is their entire life, but like their professional careers. Um, what does that tell me about the, the framework that I'm looking at? Like, is there a story in it? And and often there is. Like, you, you don't need a secondary narrator. Like, I mean, and, you know, I'm offering these kind of services. So I'm not trying to belittle the people who do that. But like, it's kind of fun. Like if you treat it like, oh, that's interesting, right? You don't have to be terrified, sit in fear, paralyzed fear. Just go look. And sometimes the stuff you find is surprisingly interesting. And you don't have to make these people all wrong. Because again, I think if this is a spiritual engagement, the energy you put in is going to be fed back to you, right? It is a feedback loop. And so if what you're doing is, as Cliff says, like we're pulling out the hammers to beat on the wrong people, like this is emergent and it's structural throughout the entire fabric of our society at this point. So you're going to be spending all your time hammering and not actually much of your time figuring the story out. If you can put the hammers down and walk a little more nimbly through this and you don't, we don't have to be wrong, but in witnessing it and talking of it, we can start to neutralize it. Like to me, that feels like, like a, like a, something worth trying anyway. Yeah. Someone asked, uh, I, someone said, I never did get Sims. And, and I would just, I was just thinking, um, all of our phones have, uh, something in it called a SIM card. So think about that when you think about like sim world and virtual worlds and everything. We, you know, we talk about digital ID. We've already had, we've had a digital ID for a long time. It's just, it's being more integrated and it's expanding and it's not the government giving you the digital ID. It's, it's this emergent system that's the government and all these different corporations and the banks and, you know, it's, it's, it's emergent. <laughs> and yeah. so, um, anyway, something to think about there on that, um, I, I also was going to mention here, so I, in terms of like the metaverse and like trying to understand these concepts, I recently watched and it was super stupid, but I wanted to bring it up um, that the New York Times did this like debate thing. It, it's actually from like six months ago or something. Yeah, six months ago, um, a debate at, uh, at the World Economic Forum. And so that's going to trigger, oh, World Economic Forum, they're, 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 the, they're the ones behind all of this. I'm like, actually, no, they're not, but they, they play a role. Um, but the question, that there was, it was a debate. The question that was posed by Thomas Friedman, who if you don't know who Thomas Friedman, uh, you know, he's been a, a stooge of empire for a very long time um, and New York Times. So there's your clue right there. But the question was, is the metaverse an opium of the people in the making? And so if you, if you really want to bore yourself, you can listen. I, I actually watched this whole thing at double speed because, uh, 
I mean, most of it was stupid, but I kind of wanted to see how they were framing. I mean, New York Times and Thomas Friedman was framing it. And I noticed something specifically interesting about the the debate. Well, first of all, framing it as, is it the opium? That's totally missing the point. Like, like, oh, it's like people get addicted to games. People get addicted to drugs. And they were talking about the metaverse as if it's just a game. And it's not a game. It's our governance. It's, a, it's, our, it's our new economy. And it's, 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 it's virtual reality and it's augmented reality and it's the, uh, inside out computer, you know, they, they totally misrepresent what the metaverse actually is. Um, but one thing that both sides agreed on that I thought was interesting was that, um, they, they kept bringing up, both sides kept bringing up the point about technology as being neutral. And, and the, the side on for the metaverse was saying, well, the technology is neutral and we can use it for good or bad. And they kept repeating that. And then the, opposite, the opposition side agreed. They said, yes, technology is neutral. And throughout the whole conversation, this kept people kept repeating it on both sides. And I was just like going, technology is not neutral. It is not, none of this is neutral. Money is not neutral. Technology is not neutral. It's not just a tool that you use for good or bad. Yes, there are good things that can come from it and bad things that come from it. But but it's, it's very structure, it's very existence actually favors certain things over other things. It, it favors extraction, it, creating a system where people's behavior is being manipulated <laughs> by tokens, you know, uh, or, or pe whether it's people manipulating each other or a corporation manipulating or the, the government manipulating. Th there, there's a system that's in place that supersedes any of the individual agents within it. And so, uh, you know, I just thought I'd bring that up, that idea, and, and, and I need to explore it more and like maybe better articulate my arguments because I keep hearing this over and over again, like, it's just a tool, it's just a tool, it's neutral, it's just a tool, and this is absolutely not neutral, and it's not just a tool. So I would just, I wanted to throw that out there. Can I, can I ask a favor? Like, would you be able to, that first clip that I had from Cesium, not the ones with the bad sound today, but the the... Could we, is there a way of playing that one? It's like the couple about, um, I, I can't remember that. It's it's like agency, like not yeah. the ones that I just did. The, can you, is there a way or is well, that the, too hard? The, the, I can't, the audio was really bad. Like, let me no, no, the, no, not the find... ones I just added, the one before. Oh, was it on your talk here? Do you, no, can you no, send no, me a no, link was, or, or, or is it on your, is it on, which, if it's on your YouTube channel, I can come find it. Like, uh, is it on your Allison channel? If you want to just send me a link and I'll, I'll play it. I might already have it in my, my thing. Um, anyways, other questions, how, how y'all doing? Thanks for sticking around with us. And, uh, uh, let's see, I'm just checking up on the, on the things. Sorry. I'm oh, someone asked what the, I always say this, but Jason, what does the acronym acronym smart stand for? Um, it's self-monitoring and reporting technology. And if you just search SMART acronym, it'll come up in the search, so. Um, and let me look in my folder here. I just, can you see the chat? I, I think I pasted it in the oh, chat. Oh, okay, okay, perfect. And let me see if I might actually just have it like handy right here. I mean, it is on my, my channel. It's just, yeah, it's yeah. just not these last four. It's like the- okay. It's, oh, shoot. It's That's called Cesium Podcast SIGGRAPH. It's the one that says SIGGRAPH. Dang it. This thing took me off the page. Okay, let me <sighs> come back here. 
Uh, I'm sorry. It's probably not going to be worth it at this point. No, no, it's fine. Go ahead and just go ahead and talk. Go ahead and talk while I'm while I'm queuing this up. Give me two seconds. Does anybody else like have have a thing that they are curious about or I don't know? Um, like I, I like to me at this this stage, it feels like the talking about the creative economy, talking about um, our imagination. Like I I finished. Oh, I put it away, but. Um, I did, I finished my read aloud of We, the Yevgeny Zamyatin book. Um, and it was, that was from 1921, I think. So predates all of these dystopia books. And it's it's about life in a lot, ruled by mathematical logic. I mean, that's, that's what they were putting forth. And towards the end, what they were implementing was a, a procedure that would remove the imagination and make you happy. <laughs> and, you know, they, the main character eventually undergoes this procedure and then it's like he he doesn't have any imagination anymore and then he can become happy um but i feel like whatever this emergent system this logic system is after um whether it's sort of our soul or our creativity or our imagination um that's 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 what it after it wants to feed us in tokens for that for the the privilege of of giving our imagination and our sort of life force over to it but um, the creative economy in the metaverse and this idea of, of shifting, I, I think that like the speculative NFT, because they always set up the false straw man argument to, to knock it down, right? So the speculation in the NFT art market, I think will move over to them eventually saying something like art is a public good. Therefore, we should tokenize all of the art and pay the artists with some sort of addition on their UBI or these micropayments for building out a beautifully artful universe for us to live in and that that will be sort of be the next phase. But this clip that I wanted you to show, it was it was mostly when you were saying that it's not neutral, is that the conversations that are being had, not totally hidden because again, these people at Cesium have their own podcast and they have you know 30 plus interviews with all the leading players, but you have to actually know that Cesium exists and what it does and to look it up in the first place. And so if you're not in that circle, if you're not in that silo, the chances that you're gonna find out are really minimal. Right. So they're all just living in their echo chambers of their old timey video games. And So I've got the um, old timey. Uh, I got the, I got the video queued up, so. Okay. And then we had, we finished the morning with Rev Libaridian from NVIDIA, your colleague, Neil, and uh, Rev is the guy who's, you know, he's taking everything that the other guy said and he's doing it. Omniverse is actually a, uh, a you know, has USD at its core. And uh, real quick, USD is universal scene descriptor. It was created by Pixar and it's basically the, the, um, the standard for creating um, graphics in, in video games and movies and, and computer generated graphics. You know, so Rev made uh, made uh, uh, a lot of interesting representation about Omniverse. Uh, Neil, you want to talk to that? Yeah, I mean, this is a uh, a great example of you no know, USD already being deployed in real time, and use cases and applications not just being used for um, offline movie rendering. And you know, there's lots of cool technology in 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 Omniverse. I mean, there were a couple of examples that Rev was using. You know, digital because he was focused on using um, uh, 
uh, on use case for metaverse in industrial rather than you know, uh, consumer uh, and, and gaming. So it was an interesting, different perspective. Digital twins was was one of the use cases. You now, what happens? What can you do if you connect the real and virtual worlds and all kinds of insights can happen, not just in real time, but if you have enough processing power to start simulating the real world as to what might happen. And if you can do that quickly enough, uh, fast enough, you can begin to you know, predict the future. <laughs> so that was a very interesting uh, framing of the power of you know, uh, high performance uh, simulation, trying out different future scenarios, you know, very powerful. Interesting idea. Actually, he called it out at superpowers, right? If I remember well. Superpowers, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and Rev's a very passionate and inspiring speaker, and I, I liked that he showed just the scale of the metaverse, which became a theme that we started to see later later in the course. And uh, then also looking at all these use cases uh, outside of entertainment. Uh, and Mark and I are excited because we're going to have Rev on, on the podcast this season as well. Yeah, yeah, we're looking forward to. Uh, to talk to Rev, I think he he make the case, you know, about real time simulation and when you can have a digital twin and simulate the future and having recorded the past, it's like you have teleportation, time travel, and then you can explore alternate futures. So I think it's uh, it, it's very powerful and you know the role. Of, I mean, he told us a lot about AI and the role of AI and you know calling calling omniverse a place when robot can learn how to be a robot. I think it's also good. Um, a good summary of what the NVIDIA is trying to do with Omniverse right there. Yeah, and I, I like this other example of training a, a, a robot inside the virtual metaverse and having it interact with the environment and then just lifting that training out into a real robot. <laughs> and it worked. You know, that was that was another very cool example. Yeah, we'll see a lot of that in our futures, so... Well, that's exciting. We're going to be able to predict predict the future. We're going to be able to teleport through our teleport, avatars, predict the right? And then, the future. So we can like teleport and train the robots and have them come out of the world and then we'll be like trapped. And then, like... The point I was making to Allison uh, in one of our conversations was uh, just about, they're, they're, on one hand, they're talking about predicting the future, but on the other hand, they're actively manipulating their predictions. So it's kind of this weird so it's not like they're just standing back and and being darn mm -hmm. participate and like hey what's going we're going to we're just going to we're we're going to uh watch the situation and then guess on what's going to happen they're like they're actively manipulating the situation and then profiting off the, the anyways I mean, and many, and again it's it's not just profit of course but um anyway so that was just something that's that was interesting <laughs> um well. so uh let's see we, we do have uh, so after the um uh, at the end of the the day in, in Tucson, there was a panel discussion with all the speakers of the day, and it was kind of, I, I think, a little bit awkward because uh, all the other speakers were there on like very much with a different kind of focus and a different purpose. And then there's Allison that was just like, well, you know, <laughs> so so like like some of the speakers were like kind of like a little bit like uncomfortable, and it's it's not not a knock on them it's just that it was just there were there were kind of two different things that were going on there and and bless drew for for trying to integrate this <laughs> but um so everybody but, was great i mean the panel they, they were just on a more um right like i'm always i'm kind of the outlier in the stuff so in any way i we didn't necessarily think 
people wanted to listen to the whole panel. Although I'm sure like we could post a link once you have those posted if people are interested. I will be uploading. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, I've got, so I'm uploading the talks from the other things, but they're, they're just, it's a different, it was a different, it was more, it was more connected to like health freedom and things like that. And yeah. so, um, so yeah. we just cut out my parts. <laughs> yeah. Just for brevity's sake. Right. And to stay focused because they're just, like I said, they're different conversations, not that they're totally unrelated, but, um, so I thought I would go through some of these things and then we can chat about them. They're, they're short little clips, but they're, these are, uh, Allison's responses to some different questions. And, and so this first one, uh, well, I'll just play it. And not to be a downer, but I just want to point out that I think that the reservation systems were the predecessors of the smart cities. I mean, and so I think the idea that under US law that you're entitled to justice, like the reality is, is that most of the original people of these lands didn't actually get the justice that we say that we are about. So I think what I'm trying to say is part of that lesson here, I think is to understand like how all those people ended up in Oklahoma, how Geronimo's skull ended up in Yale, you know, it's the Yale folks that their law school that are setting up the smart contract legal programs. And so this history is sticky and long and complicated. And I don't mean to say that it's, um, that it's a lost cause, but I think we have to go into the story with clarity. I mean, that's what John Trudell was saying, like use our intelligence and is, you, you know, are you going to come up with the result you want using the tools that were set up to create the system in the first place? And I don't know, like I don't have the easy answer, but I think that it's worth reflecting on the history because what we're facing now was faced previously and has been over history, so. Uh, do, you, do you have one, any comments on that one, Allison? <laughs> or additions? I, mean, I think it's pretty, self-explanatory yeah 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 i think so i mean you know i i during the beginning of the lockdown so when for people who aren't familiar um you know when i was doing my education activism you know i connected with someone who was involved at standing rock uh with through the veterans and uh maintained a commitment there um at, on Cheyenne River uh, Reservation, South Dakota. So when the lockdowns happened, uh, I ended up spending six weeks helping them try to get like a garden started. And I think it was probably a, a slightly a fool's errand because trying to do that in the prairie without a good water source, like was, prairie's really great at growing wildflowers, but not so much that. So like, I, my, my perspective, which I wouldn't have had had I not met this individual and had a chance to um, incorporate that story and that perspective into my analysis, like that really shaped for me understanding both not only the education, but what has unfolded since as digital empire. And so I don't, I don't try to like come in and assert, you know, anything about indigenous, but, but that the, those, those have been guideposts for me for like truly having an understanding of the history that I didn't have. Like I was a good student and I, no one ever offered me this frame to say, Oh, by the way, the mythology of Philadelphia, the mythology of the U S like there are these other stories that get curated out so that this seems like a clean, clear cut story. And then once you peel it back and you realize it's a lot muddier, then 
and you really should revisit some of those founding documents, some of these other things, um, like it's, it's a more nuanced conversation. And so for, for me, that's always been important. And I'm not trying to do it like, again, in the culture wars, this, these identities and perspectives become weaponized as polarizations. But I, like, I truly feel I'm not just doing this as a performance that we actually have a, a reckoning to do with our history um, in the history of the West and the, the, the frontier that now we're at the scientific frontier, right? That we're at the transhumanist frontier and, um, and it's relevant. And, um, you know, and it is a challenge because I, I just wrote a piece, you know, that touched on uh, many of these wrongs that happened to the original people, like they didn't have a really good recourse to the U S government. So then they appealed to the United Nations <laughs> in the post-war era. And so there was this very tight connection between indigenous rights around the world and the UN. And now that's really going to be set up for this next level of social impact, you know, natural asset corporations, tokenization of the natural world and the DNA of, you know, like, oh, sure, people of the Amazon, well, we'll, we'll preserve parts of this rainforest and we'll sample it all for the molecules and we'll maybe give you some sort of micro payment, you know, in exchange for accessing the data of, you know, the lands that you're, you know, your, your culture exists in, and that will be part of the new asset class. So, right. Anyway. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm just going to jump to the next one. And uh, okay. I'll just, and some of these, I, I kind of cut out the question, but they're, they're yeah. mostly self-explanatory. I just want to say it's important to remember that the Carnegie Corporation, besides funding the Flexner Report and the remaking of medical education, also funded the public education system. Um, and also the Peace Prize, which is homeostasis. But um, yeah, so they set up TIA Craft, like the teacher pension funds, the accreditation, and they've been behind the creation of educational technology since the 60s. And the plan for hybrid education was always coming, the plan to break down public schools and to send kids home or out into the community. I didn't anticipate that it would happen as part of a health event. That wasn't on my radar, but every document I read said that schools would be deconstructed and they would shift to an internet of things mediated, data-driven, instru personalized instruction process. And I thought I had maybe 10 years to try to explain this to people, that this was really the plan. And it, it's not a matter of people like not knowing or cycles, it's a matter of getting the readiness and what the key is, is the digital identity and the digital twin, and they're there now. And this is gonna be linked to the ESAs. The state of Arizona is one of the leaders in these education savings accounts. And it's often pitched as a conservative or a liberty-loving kind of school choice option. But what that means is once they get those accounts, that will, be t that will be your learn card, that will be your digital identity, and that will mean every community site or vendor that accepts that payment, there will be fine print about data that is sent back. And you're not gonna get to buy just anything, right? There will be a book and it will say what you're allowed to buy and what curriculums are approved, or maybe there'll be a surcharge if you want, you know, a Christian version or, you know, like of the Black Panther version, or, you know, like they'll come up with some pricing options, but all the data will go to the same place. And they've always meant for that to happen. And Arizona is at the lead on not just offering education savings accounts, but making them payable on these digital formats. So, I, I just want to add that because the makeover was coming and, and this 
really like we need people to understand that this was a health event that precipitated a tr digital transformation across every area of life. And, and that was always meant to be that way. It's not something that just happened. Yeah, and it goes back. <laughs> Go yeah. Ahead. No, I just think that would be a, a good as a, an independent clip on my channel because like there, there's so much of what's happening around the culture wars in the education space now that people are just missing. Like they're just being managed. And I, and I, I think people's hearts are in the right place. Like they, I think most people who are engaged in this are there because they actually do want it to protect children, you know, and they, and, but there are these polarizing ideologies on both sides. And if you understand, I think if people understood, right. If, you know, if we were honest about what was really happening, that, um, that they could come together and protect all the kids, you know, from the machine. Yeah. And I do think that like, if there were a certain percentage of people, I don't know what that percentage is, but if there were a certain percentage of people who, uh, a understood at least generally the outlines of what we're dealing with and in their heart rejected it and said yeah. in, in, in any way I can, wherever I have the opportunity, obviously we're, we're living in this system, you know, we need money to live, you know, to, to some extent. And, um, but just th that alone would, something would emerge from that, you know, once that were to happen. So that's where I'm thinking on like, you know, we need to like work on ourselves and like continue to, you know, cha challenge our friends and family and the people around us on, on different understandings of the world and, and, you know, get them to maybe think about some of these things, because I really do. I, I, you know, I don't think anybody, including a lot of the people that are actually building this thing, like at high levels, like if they really understood the implications of this and what it means for life, they would be against it. I, I really believe that. I, I truly believe that. But anyway, um, Okay, let's uh, jump to the next one. Uh, the next one was, uh, oh, someone in the audience had asked uh, the different panelists about their advice on what to do. So, uh, so this was Allison's answer. Were the ant wandering around by the toaster on your counter? <laughs> I think they, they play down at the nanoscale. And I think that there's the unexpected magic and possibility down there. So I think, I think you travel your road and it unfolds, whatever, you know, and you find your people. Like it's, that's the wonderful gift, you know, of this terrible time is that when you walk the road, the, be out in the world, like you said, meet your neighbors, go for a walk, talk to people and, and see what the world has to offer. And as Robin Wall Kimmerer says, listen to the plants, listen to your other relatives, like see the magic is there. We just have to wear like, Wear the right set of glasses to see it, I think. So I would just say, yeah, stay hopeful. I'm gonna put my glasses on so I can see <laughs> Is it the right pair? Did you I, get the good one? Well, these are the ones that are supposed to block the blue light, but oh, okay. I, I never wear them actually. Well, cause I do, I, I do color grading a lot of times, so you can't do color grading with these things. Oh, um, right. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, these are pretty good. Yeah. I, I, I like these little, they're nice little you, chunks. Do you, do you agree with yourself, Allison? <laughs> I, think, I think brilliant. Bloody brilliant. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go to the next one. Um, 
Oh, so this one has to do with, well, we'll talk about it afterward. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to preference it. Be mindful about having the schools manage any kind of wellness programs too. I know it seems attractive to like want to go like, oh, we don't like this health protocol. We prefer this health protocol. You don't want them in that business because actually it's part of the human capital finance market. They'll be managing pre-diabetes, pre, like they'll be putting the kids in Fitbits, and they're actually, because of the poverty, putting a lot of food pantries in the schools and then tying it to behavior management points. And one of the reasons Obama gutted um, FERPA, which is the Family Education Rights Privacy Act, Protection Act, was because they want to install medical screenings and treatments and social welfare systems in the schools so that the data is available to them in a way that it's not with HIPAA. Particularly in the mental health stuff, Carl, and like the mental health stuff you touched on, I think it's on purpose. They're manufacturing, they're manufacturing harm of anxiety and depression in kids so that they can treat them with these apps in school with license. So just, I know it's tempting to sort of say, I know the better route, and can I tell you, I think you should be mandating this other better route. But any of those mandates is going to be happening in the outside in robot. And then uh, they want to measure your stool uh, with the shit bit. So that's what I'm concerned about. <laughs> you were just waiting. To put I was like, oh, oh, I got a joke here. <laughs> shit bit. Okay. I got to come up with something funny to say about a shit bit. Okay. Uh, Allison. Uh, yeah. any more? Well, I'll just say I, I might have said this in some of the other talks in the past, but like when I was doing the education work early on, there was a, a woman that I connected with who had a blog and she was a second grade teacher in Maine at the time. And one of her co-teachers had brought in a, a program with UNICEF, which we know that now that UNICEF is all about, you know, uh, AI and blockchain and drones and VR training of children. And, you know, who knew, um, but that they had wearables for exercise and that if the children hit their, I don't know, their step count or whatever, um, that that there that would be tracked and then there would be food packages sent to poor children in some other part of the world. And, you know, and I remember her saying that there was one of the little kids who kind of came up and said, you know, you know, to, to the teacher, well, I don't understand if they have the food, why don't they just give it to the kids? <laughs> You know, like, like, but the thing is, it's this crazy double dip. Like once you understand these humanitarian aid impact markets, it's not only are they finding ways to make money off of humanitarian aid, but they're going to actually control the behavior of two ends. So you've got these entangled systems, right? We talk about quantum entanglement. Well, this is like UNICEF entanglement. You've got the second grader in Maine and like some, you know, undernourished child in India, and they're connected across the cloud sphere by these wearable techs and this humanity, this global NGO. Um, and, and they're getting probably fitness and wellness data on the kids in, in the US and then they're getting nutrition. You know, they're probably gonna measure like the test scores of the people in India and say, oh, well those kids did better because we gave them some food. So they, they, their test scores got higher and yay. So all the impact investors get paid off. And so I think, um, you know, there's a real tendency, and I saw this throughout the lockdowns in the wellness community, to be just as militant about their viewpoint and imposing their viewpoint on others as the people who were following the mainstream were about their point of view. Like it was equal intensity. Like, no, I know best. Like I know the right nutrient supplements. I know the right 
food protocol. I know the right health protocol. Like, and, and I, because I could see that the wellness space was going to be weaponized into impact finance, like, the, the 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 initial wave was just the shock treatment, but the ripples that are going to come back, probably the wellness is going to bite us in the butt more than the initial stuff. Like, I mean, and not not to minimize the harm of that initial wave of medical interventions, but the long tail of it is going to come from the wellness space. And that's going to also eventually meld with in the mental health with the no, you know, the altered, you know, if not, and they probably will move away from traditional pharmaceuticals for depression, but they'll probably come up with a game, right? Oh, are you anxious? Well, let me give you some biofeedback. Let me get, put you in a gamified state and that will, re that will remedy your depression and your anxiety. And then we can get your data. We can get you in the flow state. And Hey, like if you prove yourself, maybe you can get some tokens and you can join our, um, you know, our team, you know, our global problem solving team, like through your biofeedback device. And, um, yeah. So, you know, people feel like, no, they know the right thing. And, and that's what I've come to realize is that if you, if what you, what we're, once you understand that the issue is natural life against the machine and that agency and autonomy is, is pivotal, then you have to respect people's choices. Like, you know, even in my own family, there were choices made that were not my choices, but like the people involved were adults. So you have to respect the, the choices you make or we're not really about people's rights to make their own choices, right? Like if you're dictating the choice that you feel is better, like that's also the wrong answer in my opinion. And I just brought this up because it, it relates, um, you know, a, a lot of, and most of my friends are in that space that are, that are have activists around health freedom. And I know that there's a lot of discussion around alternative treatments. And I'm not saying that there aren't like some valid, you know, things that people should look at in terms of what's the best way to, to be healthy and all of that. But um, we did a video uh, that was actually in response to this greater reset event that that had been put on it. But but the, the, a lot of the speakers were actually promoting a lot of the stuff that Allison or, and, and I have been talking about. And I know a lot of people are really grateful for um, Children's Health Defense and for Robert F. Kennedy for challenging um, some of the narrative around the V word. Um, but uh, Allison made this, I took a clip out of that thing and, and I'll just, I'll, sh I'll show you. Um, notice that, that, in, in RFK Jr.'s book, uh, you know, the very, which chapter? Yeah, chapter one, mismanaging a pandemic. And I encourage you guys to actually like watch this video because, you know, I, we may agree with the criticisms of the way, uh, you know, what the narrative is around the, the COVID thing and what, you know, the, the concerns about the vaccines and possible, preventative things or whatever, but there's another layer to this that we need to think about with regards to um, managing, uh, I don't know how, 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 I try to think how to word this, Allison, but, you know, put, putting these, these early treatment things into, into the system, you know? So I think I encourage people to watch this. It's called RF, it's, it's on Allison's channel. It's, it's RFK Jr.'s Mismanaging a Pandemic Narrative. 
uh, video. So it's it's a clip. It's a clip. It's a but 10, like even 11 so early on, people were like, "Well, why are they not looking at food or fitness, or why are they not looking at eating the right food, or why are they not looking?" I think maybe even the person said vitamin D. But then as soon as you put that into the automated layer, right? Like, oh, okay, children, now we have to wheel you all out, and and you know, do now is time for your sun treatment, you know? Right. And so, um, you know, we we have to understand that the way until we address the structure of the data-driven society that we've we've created, even if we come up with something that seems like a really beneficial or benign solution, like answer, is is going to get, in my opinion, it, 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 there, there's a very good likelihood that it's going to end up being distorted within the machine to something that actually ends up being sort of tyrannical. Yeah. And so, and we're not saying anything about whether or not you should or shouldn't take this or that remedy, whether you should take vitamins or anything. Like that's, that's your, you know, you should figure out what's best for you and your health. That's not what we're talking about here. We're just saying that there are aspects of this that um, are incorporated into the very system that we're talking about. And actually, if you look at some of the people who are promoting these things, they're actually actively involved um, at some, some of them at kind of high levels with promoting these blockchain token behavioral tokenomics well a lot of the the repurposed drugs too are a pay for success market like they're straight up a pay for success market it's like i have documentation of that but i would i would also say that the framing of that question was about children in public schools so right. th those those are minors and people who are within a controlled setting. So they're not even able to legitimately have informed consent about their own stuff, like in that public thing. So, um, yeah, I was just like, be, be mindful. You may, you may like, and, and that's what I've said in the, the polarizing political ideology, you may, you, you may be saying, okay, the schools are brainwashing my kids to this particular ideology, but is the issue the ideology or the brainwashing? And I would say like, if they were brainwashing your kids into the ideology that you approved of, would you approve of the brainwashing as a technique? Or should we just not do brainwashing? Like, should we try to like be more measured about it? Yeah, and also uh, Seb's in the comment mentioned RFK Jr. Malone and Steve Kirsch all promoting antidepressants for, uh, for CVID. Um, do you want to say something particularly about Steve Kirsch? Because I think that he, that's, an, that's kind of an important figure. And I know a lot of people look up to him. I mean, it's been a bit, but I mean, he's a billionaire with ties to MIT and he was working in the digital identity space. And I would just say, like, look at the power dynamic. Like, you, like they want you to say like, oh, he's a nice guy or she's a nice person or they they're saying what I like for them to say. But in reality, you, you have to understand the positions that these influencers have. Right. So, you know, if you're if you're going into this, like. Money is influence, right? Like I, I'm not saying I'm not sort of speaking of his per personal character, but like. The, the power in like you don't get to be a billionaire without being like calculate unless you just inherited a billion dollars but like without being particularly calculating ab about your the choices that you make um you you wouldn't be a billionaire so um if, if he's he has positioned himself um and i i'm pretty sure that he was the one that was behind the repurposed drugs that that was a big part of it. It's been a while since I gave that presentation. But yeah, look for pay for success and repurpose drugs and understand that it's an impact market. And just, um, you know, it goes back to the same thing in the health freedom space of like, well, I have like, 
maybe we should like, why would you preemptively take a pharmaceutical when you're asymptomatic? <laughs> you know, like that, I mean, it, to me like that, that there's some cognitive dissonance there among like, if, if what you're holding to is like, how dare you make me test for a thing that I'm asymptomatic about, then why would you turn around and take medications when you're asymptomatic preemptively? Like, it, it seems to me if you're going to question the, the system of mainstream allopathic medicine and the Flexner Report and the Rockefeller Medicine, then you would do it holistically, not just because, oh, I, I don't like, it. you know, I, I say it's like their white coats versus my white coats. Like we shouldn't be run by the white coats. Ultimately, we shouldn't have a society run by the white coats or the electron microscopes, period. Yeah. Okay, let's do another. Uh... So my question is for Allison. And you mentioned Digital Twin. And have you heard about our country being a corporation and the straw man? Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with that. Again, that's one of those things like I'm, I don't hear a lot of people in that space of like the maritime law, like making the connection to the straw. I don't know, maybe they are and I'm just not active in it that much. I mean, ha do you know if they're making those connections? Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that's good. Okay. Other thing. Sorry. One more thing is um, the American frontline doctors, they've been talking about um, developing or having a parallel society and creating our own medical. We have like four hospitals around the United States as well as our own legal system, which will probably be stripping us back down to the Bill of Rights and our Constitution um, and us not following everything else that's going on here. Do you think that our country, or our world rather, will allow us to live that way without trying to encamp us, things like that? Well, I would say if they're proposing like a legal system and all of that, if they're not talking about the Web3 stuff. <laughs> I mean, to me at this point, if you're a prominent thought leader and you're not actually integrating the digital identity, Web3 cyber physical systems into the conversation, I don't really know that you're informed enough to make the strategy call. That's just where I'm at. And I don't really see, you know, I've pretty much given up the health freedom space personally because for the first year I was pretty confident that at some point the information that I was sharing about the finance markets and digital identity would sink in. And it didn't. And no one picked it up. And they still haven't. And so at this point, I mean, I would say people have to make their own decisions. It's not like many of these people haven't been told or aren't aware. They're simply not incorporating it into their analysis. And it's not because it's not happening. So then you have to wonder if these are the people who are being placed in front of you in social media. Think about the ant computer. Think about how the simulation runs and then ask yourself, where are we in the simulation and what is the purpose? I mean, maybe I could be wrong. Maybe all this Web3 isn't you know, what it is. But I would say, have a gander at the Protocol Labs YouTube channel. <laughs> it's, it's pretty intense. And the fact that those videos are only getting two or 300 views indicates, and these are some of the most powerful people in AI working on this, it just, to me, shows how broken the digital world is and how easy it is to obscure, like, within a world of curated information, what gets amplified and what gets suppressed. I'll just add as an example, so Cello is uh, a digital currency that my friend Leo Saracino has done a lot of writing on at siliconicarus.com. And 
this, this digital currency is being piloted in humanitarian aid spaces, but it's, it's, there's going to be a bigger rollout, and it's led by Sepp Kamvar. Sepp Kamvar was the person who did the per Google personalized algorithms setup, and he was the head of social, the social systems group at MIT. While he was at MIT, he created a Montessori school franchise where they put sensors in the children's slippers and in the classroom environment to track the children. It's called Wildflower Montessori. It's around the Boston area. Um, so one of his partners in this is Charles Eisenstein of the sacred economy. Now there are many, many people in the space who really find they are aligned with how he speaks about things in terms of the sacred economy and nature and other things, but the reality is he's never actually addressed the fact that he is an advisor to Cello and Sepp Kamvar. And for the most part, I think in these social worlds, they know that people are in search of a leader, like someone who they can follow and that they can trust and there's a community built around it and they, they know that that's what people seek and so that's what they give them. And then once you find it out the story is maybe more complex or there's more layers, people are really loath to be rejected from the group from looking at new realities, like asking questions. It's very hard to have the strength to just, it doesn't make the other people wrong, but it makes it very hard to introduce new information. With the ants, what they said in their path planning, they're very efficient. Once they set the path, they set the path. And if you change the route, say you remove a barrier that makes the other path that was longer, shorter, they can't change. Or if you add additional food to a food source, once the process in pl is in place, they can't redirect. So that's what the last two and a half years have been, unfortunately. And I don't even know that many of the people who are up there being the nodes in this network understand. Do I think they know about the ant computer? I don't. I think that they're just people who like to be liked and like to be influential and have things to say and they have things to say. But it's complicated. And, and understanding complexity doesn't get rewarded, unfortunately. So um, I'll just say a couple things before you, um, Allison. Uh, the, the, she, you, you asked the, the, the question, or you know, are, are people actually making these connections? And she says, "Oh yes, they are." And I, 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 I'm sorry, I'll put money on that they're not making these connections. And I, I remember, I sent your channel to somebody. It was in a, it was in a freedom. It was on a freedom group in Telegram, uh, which I left because I got frustrated with trying to. <laughs> argue with people on there but i lost patience um but you know i sent them the, i'm like hey check out some of these videos they sounded like they were engaged and I, i'm like here watch some of these things and they said oh i looked at the i, I looked through i you know this was like a minute later they responded to me and they're like oh i looked at that i already know all that stuff <laughs> like, I'm like, I guarantee you, I've yet to find anybody else that's it, it, that's even talking about this stuff like in in this way, um, and, and then like even digital ID. So like, I, I sometimes they do bring up digital ID, and I actually chimed in just for a minute today on on, on a live stream from one of the influencers, and it was just it it, it could have been the exact same talk that was happening two two years ago but it was just all the buzzwords wf cloud swab stakeholder capitalism without any context without any meaning or understanding and they'll say digital id but they won't say what that what, what it's for what it is who's issuing it they'll just say oh it's the government you know the the government's going to give your digital id and it's going to be like china i mean that's that's not what's happening i'm sorry that's not what's happening <laughs> you know if you live in china sure fine that's what's happening you know anyway so i just thought i would say that 
Allison? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, yeah, I mean, it's... You know, I I, I, th I thought it was important, the, the section that was talking about the removal of the barriers and the inability to redirect. Like, for me, that's the key point. And I think when I got to that understanding, that's where I felt like I needed to, like, like leave Twitter because once the path has been set and I feel like they probably had some measurement that said, okay, you get people in this situation for two years, you know, um, you get it reinforced that the pheromones, you, you get them on the road, you, you get like, and they're not on the same road. You've got one people on this road and one, some other people on that road. And then you've got some people wandering around by the toaster, you know, which is us. And, and then it's not going to really change. It's not going to fundamentally change. And that's why even in the, the health freedom space within the first year, I said, listen, I think this is so much bigger. People have already set their course. Let us talk about something that's outside of the health space that we can unify around and then maybe back end it, right? Like let's talk about education or let's talk about these other electronic government because that's something that's that the, the, the course hasn't already been set. And maybe if we can build some bridges among people in those spaces, then eventually it'll backwash in, into the, the health stuff, eventually they'll come around, right? But if we if we go in good faith to build bridges on these other issues that relate to Web3 and tokenization, we could get there. But it was so clear within the, the narrative structure that that was never going to happen. And if anything, the health freedom space has gotten so angry, like majority, from what I understand, like angry and toxic and vengeful that they've poisoned themselves. Largely, I mean, and they feel very, very self-congratulatory in, in their rage ab about things, but they're never going to come back like that barrier. Like you could put a whole glommy thing of like, you know, a big brownie sundae blop on the kitchen floor, like and they're not even going to see it like they, they can't actually. And then and I have some like once you understand the structure, then you actually like sometimes I would be angry with people like I still get frustrated, but I, I, I can't say like I'm, I'm human. Right. But I'm trying, I, I can tap into compassion for them because I understand how they've been managed to that end and that it's not all their fault. I mean, they do have agency and they could make a different choice, but the, the structure is so powerful and they've probably got it so fine tuned that I can't, I can't just be, remain angry with them because I know that what they're in involved with. And I don't know why some of us are maybe able to not to be outside of it. But then the hard thing is when you're outside of it, you're really outside and you're like the lonely ant by the toaster. And like, there may be a couple, three or four ants, like follow you over to the toaster, but like they're never coming. And so that's why when people ask, what do you do? Like, I'm not going to presume to tell other people, but the, the course that I've chosen is to make to understand, to get clarity, to use platforms, which admittedly are still on social media, but not an interactive way in the same way, and to make these interventions where I can. And that's what feels right for me. But then other people have to figure out what feels right for them. Yeah, Because I'm not giving up. I'll say one more thing on the digital ID in terms of understanding what the digital ID, I mentioned, you know, the SIM in your phone. Um, I think our, we need to rethink excuse me, our understanding of the digital ID itself, because what we're dealing with and a lot of these, these, um, uh, it's called zero knowledge 
uh, so it's it's like how do how do we know who, who you are without actually like sharing the information? But but they're saying, well, you know, traditionally you have like an ID, you have your your state ID, or you have a birth certificate, or whatever. Um, but they're saying we want we want other ways. In fact, that's not necessarily even the best way. What we want is is like a distri- dis- uh, a decentralized, interoperable, um, networked way of knowing who you are. So your your digital ID is not simply your SIM. It's it's your SIM. It's your connections on Facebook. It's people who know you, and they're actually building in into the tokenized system incentivized ways to 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 um, give people tokens to to verify your identity. So I think the idea of like that we need to rethink the the concept of digital identity itself because it's not it's not just going to be like oh you have a code you have a number. Um, I mean. Yeah, I'm sure you'll have like there'll be some sort of a, a number, but it's going to be this this networked thing that's going to say who you are f- from like everything they, they talk about from, you know, facial recognition, rec- recognition, but also your driver's license, Colorado, we have the, the driver's license, but also your social media network and your interactions. Oh, you go to the gro- you went to the grocery store and you used your grocery store card to get a discount. That will be fed into the ID, ID. so they want like a foolproof way to really, really know who you it's are. Behavioral biometrics, right? Too. And that's like, where, I like, remember that oh, early yeah, on, right. and I really understand like behavioral biometrics, what it meant. And they're like, oh, well, we know that you go running at at five thirty every day, like with your smartwatch, or we know, and and you know, I've even seen things like I used to like call my credit card company when I would go out of town. So they wouldn't ding like have an Ella Bean credit card. And they were terrible. Like where you show up somewhere and they, they cancel, like you go to, you go on vacation the first day you go to the grocery store to get the groceries and they're like, Oh, bing, you know, so I would call. And then eventually they didn't need me to call anymore. They're like, and it was funny. Cause once I almost caught them up, like they were like, Oh, like, like they knew why they didn't need for me to call them, but they, they almost were going to tell me. And then they had, then they pulled back. So there's some new information in the credit card companies, like at that point, like two or three years ago, that they didn't need that anymore. Right. Um, there was something about the biometrics that they knew. So, um, but yeah, and I, you know, SEBS has been doing some work on these directed acyclic graphs. Like that's the thing they, they imagine that your government is going to give you one identity, and that's. But no, it is an integrated social identity because if you understand that their goal is collective consciousness and teaming and this global superorganism, they're really interested in your identity in relation to others as well. Like, so all of these nodes are like, you've got the Voronoi polyhedron, but you also have this other graph thing that's like building out with different nodes with all these different, you know, interfaces. And, you know, one of the, the talks I was listening to recently was on, it was the IEEE guy, the Juan, Mr. Juan from IBM in China or whatever, the standards. And he was talking about persistent computing right? So they need this thing to work wherever you are. And they need for like, when you leave, I don't know if you can ever really leave mixed reality, but like when you engage more specifically, you turn back and you engage in a partial a section of the mixed reality that it's the same as when you left it, or it has the same information. Or when Philip Rosedale or Neil Stevenson are having their creators build out the creative economy, they were talking about value chains in like the creation of a sword like that you use in a game. So someone sketches it out on a napkin and that's a first claim of creation, but then someone does another level of putting it in a game and that's another added element of the supply chain. But then 
it has to be refined by the art department. So that's another level. And then you have to add like sounds that go with like when you use the sword and that's the sound department. And so all the hands that touch that virtual object along the way will be pinned for a certain amount of micro credit at some point. So every time that sword gets picked up and used in the game, like these tiny payments trickle back to the various people, depending on their level of commitment in that. And and that was the same with the, um, what was it? The, retroactive funding stuff that Dalrymple was talking about, right? Like you build a public good and and you have some sort of credit for the amount of time that you put into that, creating that public good. And so at some future point, if there's some payout, you'll have an entitlement to a certain percentage. So it's, it's a different kind of speculation and like, but it's all tied back to your identity as you understand it. So it's, it's much more sophisticated than the government's giving you a Chinese social credit. You're right about that. And, you know, I said, if anything, your digital identity, your your graph that you're creating, it's going to be central to your work history. You're not going to be able to get work without a social graph. Um, and, and, and Zargum talks about that a lot. Like, sure, you could fragment your identity. You could create different um, personas, you could reveal certain things to certain people, but you're going to have to start from scratch every time and rebuild it. And you have to rebuild the trust through doing work with people. It has to happen in real time. It, it can't be accelerated. So it may take you three or four or five years to build up enough social credit within the work environment to be able to get the tasks you want. Um, but that's not the government doing it. That's the new platform labor model. Right. And and I think that people who do coding work know, have known this for a very long time. Like if you're doing all this GitHub stuff, like I, I don't, I've never done it, but like, it seems like that's like, oh, well, of course that's how you do it. Like we've been doing it that way for 10 years, probably in the coding world, but nobody else has. And soon we're, we're they're going to push it on everybody. Well, if you're in that space, there's a logic to it. Because like you're saying, okay, I run a website. We want to stop all these bots. There's all these bots that are creating these accounts and they're doing nasty things. They're they're promoting stuff. They're putting sex ads up. They're doing all this stuff, which is true. Like there's there's a problem there with bots for sure. Um, so there's a logic. If, if that's like, this is the problem that we're solving is the bots without any thought or understanding about any of the other consequences about their solution to this, this one little problem. Um, you know, it's, there's a logic to it. <laughs> you know, we want to know that you're who you are and, and actually hack I'm leading hack one Lau's book, uh, in consciousness, we trust, and he's with harmony. And I, I picked up the book because I was like, he, he works in brain science and neuro brain science. And he's also working with harmony, which is a, a um, a, a blockchain. UBI. UBI. Yeah. yeah, they promote UBI is one of the things. Um, but uh, he calls it proof of consciousness. And then, you know, proof of proof of soul, proof of, per, you know, proof of personhood, yeah. personhood. Exactly. Um, so but there's, but there's they, uh, some of these things they're going to give, they're going to give identities to virtual machines, like, mm -hmm. yeah. they're going to have their own identity. And even in the talk that I was looking at today about like creating characters in the metaverse, they're like, oh, you know, you can just be anything. Like you probably wouldn't want your doctor to look like a dinosaur, but you could, you know, like, um, you know, you could have, you could be a strawberry, but then like, again, you could have your toaster look like, you know, a hot pinup guy or something like that. Like you could, it could, anything could be linked to anything else. And then like, are they gonna give the toaster that looks like the pinup model an identity? And like, do they get a proof of personhood identity if they're a toaster? Can they look like a person or do they have to look like, 
do they have to look like a toaster or could they look like a strawberry? Like, like there are all of these crazy social rules that we don't understand. And, and then like, we're asking, like, there's, you know, I've had hard things happen to me in social media spaces, like things like that feel really like bullying, like some of it and some of it's just hurtful. And like, so how are we like, they, they want to paint this as some lovely utopia of social relations in the metaverse. But like, I know differently, like I know from personal experience and like what happens once we can start to dance around and like put on costumes in there. And like, we have no idea who we're actually dealing with. Like, I don't know. Yeah. And I've been trying to, you know, I left social media and I've been trying to pull myself away from that. And somebody made a comment, uh, the unscannables will be banished or worse. Someone else said, like, if you're not on LinkedIn, you don't even exist. And and I was thinking about that. Like, it, it, it might be really difficult for me to get work in the future, even as a uh, an independent, you know, gig worker, if I can't prove that I'm a real person, you know, I'm a real human being, like, we need to know who you are, you know, we can't, we, you don't have any, you don't exist. You know, yeah. it's like walking around without any well, and all of us people who don't exist about verifying each other won't do any good either. <laughs> yeah, None of you exist. You, you guys are all that you don't exist. Uh, so uh, but yeah, I've thought a lot about that. Like, you know, how is this going to affect because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I've made the decision that I'm not going along with this. <laughs> I do not in every ounce of my being, I, I'm opposed to this thing that they're building. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, uh, well, we have one more, uh, we have one more, uh, question and answer from this. So I'll go ahead and run that. Alice. And I wanted to ask, um, what you feel AI wants to do with human diversity. I think it wants to cultivate diversity, actually. I mean, once you understand that diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice isn't just a wokeism, like isn't just about brainwashing you to the progressive program, it's actually part of the complex systems analysis. It's a different, again, it's a different lens. And so, like when I, like and I have a piece I haven't published yet that I've been, I need to get back to, but it was about MIT's role in education and Lego Corporation. And um, I was trying to figure out how to talk about this emergent system, because many, many people sort of identify that there are bad guys, and we can find them. And they, there must be a certain number, and it's the cabal, and we'll find them and do something to them. And I'm like, I don't think that that's, that may give certain people comfort. But I think this is more like an emergent decentralized system that's coming from all over by people who just don't really understand the complexity of it. And so is that demonic? Well, some people might imagine that as demonic. There's a lot of people who understand things within like the book of revelations. For me, I, I don't feel comfortable living in the doomsday program at this point. I'd rather this be like a test of humanity's better nature. <laughs> and so I've sort of chosen to think of this decentralized distributed thing almost like a Pinocchio. Like there's some sort of like misguided child up there that looks down and it sees something that it wants. It wants to be something it can't be. And that it's, it's searching around in all of us and collecting us and poking around to try to figure out what we are. And I don't know that it's doing it from a mean place or an angry place or a trying. It just doesn't know what to make of the system. And it's sampling and playing, kind of. And to me, 
if you live in a story where it's that instead of a demon that's trying to kill everybody, then it actually gives us more agency because we're like, you know, it's not going to work out, Pinocchio. Like, we're not your toy. Like, I know it's going to be okay. Like, I have compassion for you, but you can't be us. And so that's how I'm choosing to look at it at the moment. But again, we all live in stories and I, you know, no one's given me a hot tip that it's Disney and Pinocchio up there. <laughs> Although maybe Disney, I don't know. But that's how I think about it. It's funny um, when I first I, I've I've been really reluctant with social media from the very beginning. But I did create a MySpace account, but I was like totally anonymous on it. And my my username on MySpace was I'm a real boy. And my, my image was like a boy doll head, kind of like a Ken looking doll head, but not quite. It was, it was a different, I don't know what, I didn't recognize it, but I, 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 right from the beginning, I was like, there's something fishy about this whole thing, you know, but yeah, <laughs> I'm a real boy. <laughs> yeah. So I eventually, yeah, I do have to get that put out that, that write up. Cause I, I think that that is an important, like what, what are we going to, cause we can choose the story that we live in and we can choose like the role that we play as we understand it, you know? And, and if anything, that's what I've sort of learned over this is that like, there's actual power in choosing our story, like in choosing how we tell our story. Um, and that's one thing that we ha do have control over is how we see ourselves in the story that we're inhabiting. Like there, there, we, there may be other things that are happening beyond our control, but the way we choose to see things gives us is what either gives us power or our agency moving forward or doesn't. So, yeah. and I, you know, I, I appreciate um, Cliff's insights into that, into, you know, the idea of like, what are you listening to and what is this narrative? Um, because yeah, I didn't have that the first year or so. Like I was just running around frantically going, Hey, this is really important. Listen to me. And then the more you actually, once I, I, I developed an understanding of the system, like, and then it's then you're sad about it and then you kind of get resigned and then you're like okay well here's a new tool the new tool is like we get to choose our story and um yeah and that's up to every person to use and and to to be honest that's our creative power right that's our imagination and that's something that it doesn't have so like yeah. exercise it often <laughs> yeah i've been i've been slowly getting deflated as i go along with this thing. But right now I'm happy to say, I, I feel like I've got my, I don't know which, which wind it's not my second, that's for sure. But I'm, I'm, I, I'm putting on a different lens right now. And I'm, I'm actually in the process of, of changing, you know, myself and how I deal with this and how I, you know, deal with myself as well. So it's, it's, uh, you know, there's anyways, I'm, I'm in a good place right now. <laughs> right. Um, uh, I, I wanted to mention one last thing, um, and then you can, if there's anything else you want to add. Um, someone mentioned, I think the lack of consensus is the only thing holding it back. Um, I have two things to say about that. One is I, I don't think it necessarily needs consensus because, again, it's it's a system that can that that feeds on polarization. But I will say there is there is a the company that that there's a person named Joseph Lubin and he start he he was one of the the key people who helped finance Ethereum like from the very beginning and his company is called Consensus and we you know we could probably do a whole show and get even get Leo in on that but like uh, consensus is actually a really important 
uh, topic to discuss and, and, and the company as well. So uh, anyways, I just thought I would bring that up because I thought that was uh, worth uh, commenting on. Yeah. And I think that actually um, the idea of consensus is sort of central to the Quaker like faith practice, you know, and I'm, I'm the one who's always sort of dragging out the Quakers to talk about like them in, in the finance part of this. Um, and sociocracy is also part of sort of like this consensus based governance thing. And actually in one of the talks I heard, I, I believe it was Michael Zargum, like uplifting sociocracy as an option, because I, I think it's suited to this tokenization, like process and remote participation. So, um, yeah, consensus is a pretty loaded term. And, and I agree with you about Lubin and his importance in the whole system. Like, because if anything, I mean, I don't know, like, he, he seems like he might be in control of more things than even than Buterin, you know, who's still, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Well, on that, um, thank you, Allison, And thank all of you for listening to us. Um, yeah. Thanks for editing all of that together, Jason. I know that that was a bit of a piece of work to get all of those clips together. And, and thank you, Drew and Tucson for having us out and um, extending your hospitality and for everybody who came to see us live and, um, you know, and for everybody who's hung out in the chat. Yeah. Well, uh, till next time. <laughs> right. Thanks, everybody. Allison, I wanted to oh, ask. Hold on. That's not what I meant to do. <laughs> let's let's go out on a nice photo of Arizona. Uh, oh, did you make that? <laughs> no, I just found it on the internet. <laughs> beautiful, the looking... Sonoran Desert is beautiful. And those the, the Segura cacti cactuses were yeah. amazing. So, thanks everyone. Good night.